Empire podcast this week, we're going to the dogs with Phil Lord and Chris Miller as they talk strays and beetling about with Angel Manuel Soto, director of Blue Beetle, and asking Alex Winter about the effects of YouTube as he tells us about the YouTube effect. All that and more on the movie podcast that is wearing a fake nose right now as we speak. <laughs> Too soon. I know it. Too soon. <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to this week's Empire Podcast. Your regular host, Chris Hewitt, is absent this week, I'm afraid, because he is presumably still on hold with British Airways. <laughs> uh, he doesn't even have a flight to change. He just really likes their hold music. Uh, but fear not, because I am still joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is our very own warrior nun. Please hold your comments about that for later. <laughs> James Dyer. Hello, Helen. Hello. I feel like I've been away for months. It, it, it felt like that to us as well. It was a glorious period. <laughs> and, uh, and now it's over. I, I can only apologise for the fact that I have now returned. Did you have a nice holiday? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> it was fine. Good. Somehow, yeah. die ever turned. That's right. <laughs> James, are you hoping for warrior nuns on the run? I know you're loving oh, nuns oh, on the run. Oh, it's, that's it's, the dream, isn't well, it? Wait, hold it, hold it. <laughs> You've just heard them both because we've already gone to the dogs. But we also have... Our warrior novice, Amon Warren. <laughs> Hello. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. And finally, our beloved warrior mother superior, Nick DeSemlin. Amen. Uh, you do look good in a wimple. I, well, thank you. I put it on specially. Nick, you are actually here for a reason today, and it's mm. a very exciting one. And the reason is that next week, next mm, week... A week today. A week today, as we record this, a, less than a week today as you listen to it, um, your newest book will be out on Ooh. shelves, both digital and actual, and it is called The Last Action Heroes. It's an erotic thriller. Not mm. an erotic thriller, although there are moments of rumpy pumpy in it. <laughs> there are. Yes, this is my sweaty saga that I worked on over 2021, uh, 2020, 2022. Who knows? Time is a yeah. concept. This was your pandemic. This was my <laughs> pandemic, and you can probably tell by reading it. But yes, this is, in the words of uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, when talking about Universal Soldier, 100% pure beef. It and is, yeah. It is uh, full of action men doing so it's So things. it's about Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, Jackie Chan, Chuck Norris... Steven Seagal, Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren. Yes. It's all basically of all of the giant men and and smaller but very agile men. Yeah, it's like it's like the Expendables, but a book, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully better. <laughs> I don't want to compare it to the Expendables, but essentially, it's that. All I want for Lee Christmas is this book. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I now pronounce you man and knife. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be honest. I read it in the last twenty-four hours, and it's freaking fantastic. It's really good. How I learned things I didn't that? know before. It took me two and a half years. <laughs> how how many pages is that book? I mean, look, but there's there's an index at the back, so, so you don't have to read those bits. So it's only like two hundred and eighty-eight. Pages. But still, have you seen My Stepmother is an Alien? The way Kim Basinger lays her arm in a book and immediately absorbs all the information. That's how. That's what Helen does. Are you familiar with yeah. Johnny Five? Yeah, I feel like there are more classic examples of that. <laughs> have, I, have I gone back too far? Yeah, I wanted it to be contemporary to your book, Nick. That's why. Yes, yeah. uh, that is mentioned in my other book, uh, mm. but not in Wild this and one. Crazy Guys. Available now. Well, at all good booksellers. Now, <laughs> um, but yes, uh, so this goes from Rocky. Uh, in the mid seventies, up to I think True Lies mm. is the is the final one. So up up to like the mid nineties and uh, charts, these very silly men and the <laughs> things they got up to when people gave them lots of money and they made very big loud films. What I love, and this is a kind of a recurring theme in the book, is on several occasions one of them balked at doing something for a for a movie, 
um, either because they thought it would make them look bad or because they thought it was too dangerous. And someone would basically goad them into it, like by doing it in front of them or just by essentially calling them a wimp. Yeah, that is a recurring theme. I, I think, obviously, the famous one is Stallone uh, doing Stop My Mom Will Shoot just because Arnie pretended he wanted to do it. And they're basically like small children. They can be easily tricked. Um, but yeah, the other one I think of as well is Jean-Claude Van Damme on the set of Street Fighter, and he was scared of snakes but didn't want to admit to anyone he was scared of snakes and had to be tricked into doing a scene with a snake. Because uh, And the same with uh, Stallone with Cliffhanger. With Cliffhanger, that he didn't yeah. want to. It turned out he signed up for a film called Cliffhanger with a deadly fear of heights, uh, not realising he would actually have to go up a mountain and had to be tricked by Rennie Harland um, into, into wearing that jumper into all of it, <laughs> into all of it. Um, that opening scene in Cliffhanger still freaks oh, me out it's still incredible yeah yeah. I love Cliffhanger they're, yeah. they're making another one aren't they mm. Cliffhangers well, they, were doing, they were doing an all female reboot and then apparently that got scrapped and now me. they're just doing a Cliffhanger 2 yeah. cliffhanger this is, I have to be said, this, as, a, as an enemy of, of comedy, Wild and Crazy Guys, while I very much enjoyed it, it was not very much my wheelhouse. This very much is, uh, because we don't get people like this anymore. Like, they're larger than life. Mm. They're like these huge action heroes. It feels like an entire, I mean, it was a very different world for cinema back then, where, these, you know, they could charge this huge amount of money because they were so, so almost like supernatural in their image mm-hmm. that half the film was done, right? Like, having Arnold on screen was an action film if he we, if we did nothing. Mm. Uh, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Incredible times. I, I also enjoyed finding out who came out of this worse. It, it's not a huge shock to me <laughs> who behaved <laughs> worst out of all of them, but um, but still, I quite enjoyed some of the some of the uh, the, the the crazy behaviour that they got. The, up to. The, well, the Steven Seagal. But yeah, I don't I, know I, why what I just I, said. <laughs> Steven Seagal. That's so weird. I tried. I genuinely tried to find some stories about Steven Seagal being nice. Okay. Not even nice, but just neutral. But no, uh, I, I found one story in my research, which is that uh, he did um, a movie with Pam Grier very early on, and she had cancer at yeah. the time and mm. um, went to hospital. And apparently, Steven Seagal was one of the few people that went to visit her, for which she was very grateful. Although he may have been there for a different reason, just wandered in the wrong room. I don't know. But let's assume he's being. A yeah, nice guy, yeah. but yeah, there were there were not um, there, there were some quite hair raising um, Steven Seagal stories. Mm-hmm. I, I particularly enjoyed the story about him attempting to kick Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon out of oh, a room I at mean... Warner Brothers when they're doing a, a meeting for grumpy old men. And Steven Seagal was like, "I have never been more shocked by anything than like, that anecdote." I was quite involved. delighted by him just being a dick about meeting rooms because it's like it's a relatable thing. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, be- I've got it booked. Yeah, and I bet he didn't. <laughs> he claimed he did quite there in black. My my favorite detail is the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger had his own sort of marble parking space outside World Gym. That is incredible. Wow. And people would leave rose, bouquets of roses there. And it's just, <laughs> that's his parking space. Did it look like he was basically parking on a gravestone? Like, is that, like, it must have looked a bit like he was parking on a gigantic gravestone. But. Yeah, it's an amazing image. He's, he's not one for subtlety. I think I said this before. Uh, his office in Santa Monica, and when you go into the lobby, there is a mural which goes across four walls and it's like black and white and it's all like golden age of Hollywood characters. You've got Bogart, you've got Bacall, you've got everyone on there and then in the mural Arnold in full colour has smashed through the wall with a machine gun and is spraying bullets on this mural and there's a metaphor in there somewhere it's not subtle yeah he um, I mean I was delighted to find in my research that there was a point in the early 90s where he would refer to himself in the third person in interviews (laughs) and it's like he's a joy to write about because it's like how is this a real human being like he was so huge in every sense but just the stuff he would get up to like he was the first person to buy a Humvee like a military Humvee and it was that, that time around 
two, where he was at his absolute just, mm, yeah. and it was just completely wild the stuff he got up to. And now he's just stroking pigs on TikTok. It's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes a change from wildcats. So, yeah, you know. I, I, that's absolutely fair. We, in fact, we did uh, for your book. We did a screening of Terminator Two, didn't we, last weekend? Oh, which we was did. great at the well, Finsbury Park Picture House. Yes, and you've got a few more coming up, haven't you? Which is actually going to bring us to the question. This oh, week. oh nice nothing is left to chance. You're telling me the question isn't when is my screenings? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. Well, it's close actually. So it comes from at endless Mike O3 on the app formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> and uh, he asks, "What older film would you personally most want to screen?" And do a Q and A for, and I suspect he was inspired, yes, by uh, by your series of screens. So you've been screening some of the films that are mentioned in this book, and then doing Q and As. Yeah, it's a bit of a cinematic death match where I wanted to, <laughs> uh, with Picture House, put up uh, a film from each of the three, the the big ones: the Stallone, Schwarzenegger, and, and Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we did T2, which was great. That was my first time seeing it on the big screen because I was too young when it came out. Oh. Genuinely, mm-hmm. so that was completely amazing. That last half hour is oh my, my favourite action scene, but I also, think, ever. 1991, and the effects have not aged. Like, the effects dated. absolutely hold up. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't dated. It's, it's yeah. astonishing. It's like there isn't one bit of the film where you're like, that's dated badly. Except for the haircut on from, Young John's yeah. friend. Yes, exactly. I was going to say, that, guy, that guy's mother is, uh, I'm not. I'm convinced it's a Terminator. Um, so that was really fun. And then we've got Rambo First Blood Part 2 uh, coming up this Sunday at Picture House Central, um, which, again, I haven't seen on the big screen, and that is kind of like Stallone at his Stallonius. most yeah. Yeah. yeah Stallone at his most I'm not taking any notes from the studio <laughs> so if you watch it it's it's got some absolutely wild stuff in it it's crazy mm. and then uh, doing Die Hard next Thursday the 24th Gosh. which is the day the book comes out and um, I'm going to be talking to Colin Trevorrow who is in the book Yes, and, he is. Um, yes. He reached out to me. He didn't know at that point he was in the book, so I told mm-hmm. him. But um, he uh, remade Die Hard when he was small with, uh, with well, a camcorder say, yeah. uh, <laughs> with his friend's cat as the Hans Gruber character. <laughs> wow. Um, sadly, that's Did he lost. drop the cat off a building? Because that's problematic. <laughs> Probably not a didn't full building. That. Like maybe a Wendy's. A small building. Yeah. 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 They want to stand on the feet, so it's fine. But um, sadly, that that video has been lost to time because no. I did see if we could put it up on the big screen. But um, I'm very excited to talk to him. Amazing. And he obviously knows his stuff and big diehard fan. So if people want to come along to those, they should check your Twitter feed, I guess. Yeah, or go to yeah. Pitch House. Uh, I'm go not going to plug House. it any more than I already have. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would love to see you there. All right. But it is a very good book, people. And do, do check out The Last Action Heroes uh, next week when it comes out. But we have a question before us. Yes. So what older film would you, you personally most want to screen and do a Q&A for? The film that immediately came to mind is Coming to America. Um, <laughs> screening brand. that and Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall as a Q&A. I doubt I'd get more than three questions in, but it would be a fun-ass time. Um, so yeah, that's the one that I'm It's a good answer. That's yeah. a very good answer. But would, would it be, uh, and joining us for the Q&A is Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall and they're just all the different characters. And they keep running by the screen. Yeah, so, yeah. And just changing. <laughs> is there like one scene from it in particular you want to see on the big screen? It's got to be one of the barbershop scenes. It's the dating sure. montage for me. That destroys <laughs> oh, me. Absolutely sure. destroys me. Wait, would... is this a comedy you like, Jim? Yes, genuinely. I like, okay, so this is this is something that you may or may not know about me. Even though I am an enemy of fun and an avowed villain mm-hmm. of comedy, I love, love, love 80s Eddie Murphy. Just love it. Unabashedly. All yeah. of it. He was um, at his peak. I would love to hear Soul Glow. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Oh, Eric LaSalle is so good in that film. He really is. 
talk about we were talking about good movie hair uh, before. Yes, <laughs> and that would be in I, the conversation. I mean, I mean, good, good movie hair. Yes. I mean, it is not. <laughs> it's <laughs> greasy movie hair. <laughs> it's very shiny. Yeah, I'll never, that, but ne- not never you sold. Like. Yeah, sorry. This is a, this is a conversation that, that <laughs> happened off camera, and we should have really saved for the podcast. Yes, we should. <laughs> who we has the best movie who hair? Maybe we should tackle this another time. Maybe, yeah. Well, let's get through this question. Yeah, we can give it a quick go now. But James, what would your screening be? See, I feel like because we've already mentioned nuns on the run. I need to go back to that particular <laughs> well. Not warrior nuns on the run, but just nuns on the run. You know, if the late, great uh, Robbie Coltrane was still with us, to have him and Eric Idle talking about that film would be amazing. Are you being serious right now? 100%. <laughs> this is your answer. I, I suspect both of them wish <laughs> never to speak of that film again. <laughs> and I'm like, no, guys, it's really good. You, you need could, to give it a chance. You could double bill it with King Ralph. Maybe, maybe. I do it and then Pope must die as well. Uh, I just, honestly, there's just something about that film that just tickled me so much. I thought it was, I thought it was so funny. I love it. So because because maybe maybe that's what killed your love of comedy. And maybe it was. Maybe it was that. See, I used to say that the film I'd like to do is <laughs> I'd like to get Christian Bale in a room and and re revisit Equilibrium with him. Uh, but <laughs> having having revisited Equilibrium myself, oh, I'm not sure. Again. Yeah, I'm not sure either of us would get out of the screening alive. <laughs> I got I got some time for that film, but. We don't need it's, to be it's, really it's, it, look, it's fine. Is still fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, Nick, if you didn't have to screen a screening around your work, mm. what would you what would you like to, people to see? Well, the uh, my answer for this is because they never ever show this on a big screen ever. Mm. Like most things, if you hang around long enough, we have the Prince Charles, which is like an amazing yep. repertory theatre, and we have mm. loads of cinemas in London. Mm. They show old stuff. No one ever puts on the fucking Frighteners, and I love the Frighteners. Uh, it's one of my favourite Peter Jackson films. I missed it when it came out the first time. Mm. I want to see uh, Milton Dammer's FBI agent up on the big screen because that film is glorious. That's fair. That's it's a good film. Answer. It yeah. is a good film. My my problem is I don't like have anyone really to Q and A, but I would really like to to put on some of the Marilyn Monroe films where mm. her comic genius is is there and present because I feel like people just dismiss mm. her as oh she's gorgeous. She, For the sake know, of this question, star. I think you can commune with the dead. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Then I would like well if I, look if I could commune with the dead. <laughs> I mean, that opens up a whole. Like, <laughs> then we're talking. It would probably be like. Uh, some like a hot just because I would also get to talk to Jack Lemmon yeah. and unlike Steven Seagal I have some fucking respect for Jack Lemmon <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you that but um, but otherwise I was thinking How to Marry a Millionaire because I feel like it's it's Marilyn Monroe doing a properly comic performance and I don't think people credit her enough but if we're talking live people then the 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 gospel I want to spread always is Rob Reiner's 1980s movies. So yes. I would put on Stand By Me. Oh. I'd like to get the cast back together, but certainly Rob Reiner and just talk about his incredible run of films in the 80s because he does not get enough respect put on his name for that run. Can no, I stay behind fair. and do a Spinal Tap screening? So I'm yes. changing my answer. <laughs> no, but <laughs> can you imagine like that Spinal Tap, Harry mm. Met Sally, you know, north. Into A Few Good Men. Okay, we're skipping North. We're skipping, I know you mentioned it in your book, but we're skipping North. <laughs> going straight to a few good men you know misery for god's sake Rob Bryan is great princess, does not get princess enough. bride he does not get oh, enough he does love. not get enough respect anyway so that's my answer I, I must say you know I know I am going to my heartland films here but I have interviewed Arnold Schwarzenegger many times I've never properly talked to him about Predator and Predator is my all time favourite Schwarzenegger film not the best but it is my favourite and I would love to get him to talk about that film uh, I remember Chris did an interview with Carl Weathers on this podcast and talked to him at length about Predator and it was 
fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I would like to hear the Arnold version of that story. He can talk mm -hmm. about the jog he did during his training where he threw up and had diarrhea on the same run. <laughs> like, not at the same exact moment, but on the same run. It's like, That's not a good time. It's not, it's not a good time. <laughs> and he kept going. Yeah. What? I think that happened to everyone. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. happened to all of us. <laughs> Guys, am I right? Um, okay. Am I right? Shall we move on, please? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do a quick movie hair thing? A this, quick movie. Okay, this was, so this was not a question from a reader. This no. was just something that James and I got talking about before we started. Best movie hair. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And we're, we're this is men's edition. We're not yeah, talking. not women. women. I feel like James Spader in the eighties had excellent hair. Am I wrong? I mean, he had good. He was hair. very bouncy. That's yeah. for sure. He, he, he conditioned. But the correct answer, the only answer to this, is Anson Mount, uh, specifically <laughs> as Captain Pike in Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. But also, I would put yes. in. Cullen Bohannon in Hell on Wheels. Yeah, okay. This is technically, we're okay, TV hair, but we're talking, you know, people who have been in movies hair, apparently. Yeah. Um, because it is magnificent. That swoop that he has oh. with the with the streakiness is just yeah. spot on. I, it, and of course, streakiness brings me naturally to Timothy Oliphant as yes. well, In uh, particularly, of course, in The Mandalorian. This but, is the yes. pilot TV version of this question, but yes. <laughs> it is. But the, the, I mean, I feel like the yeah. big screen has yet to really reckon with that streakiness. Part maybe sometimes from... Richard Madden's done streaky. Did he have streaky he, in the Eternals? He, he, um, I don't know if he's streaky in the Eternals. Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall. That's good oh, hair. That is good. That's hair. good. Pitt often has good hair. I, frankly, his interview, interview with the vampire, vampire well, yeah. wig, let's be honest. Uh, is it, was it a wig? I'm pretty sure it was a wig. Or maybe he it wasn't. Had, he no, had long he hair had long at, hair that, hair time. at that time. I wonder whether it was as long. No, I think it was, well, maybe he had extensions. Maybe. I don't know, but maybe. he did have long but he, yeah, hair. Yeah, he did have swishy hair at the time. And then he cut it all off for seven and it still looked great. It did. I mean, it did. Banderas damn. had a wig in, in Interview with the Vampire. Banderas I know that. Banderas has good hair, though. Yeah, Banderas' has hair in, like, The Legend of Zorro. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh Wait, yeah. it's like, no, but it's like we were talking. So, so you've got the you've got the counterpoint. You've got sculpted ice cream hair like yes. Anson Mount, and then the other is the artfully tuzzled. Oh, look. and as we were my... talking, this is your Chalamet. This is your Oscar Isaac. Yeah. It's it's you know. This is my personal thing. Yeah, this yeah. is my oh, personal favorite like thing this. on screen. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's the Oscar Isaac as Poe Dameron. It's Ben Wishaw as Q. It's Timothy Chalamet in everything, pretty much. Um, and and most recently, we'll be talking about it next week, but there's a Louis Garrel film uh, called The Innocent, and just the tousling is so strong in that. Mm. It really, for good Lord. I mean, you guys have taught, you've mentioned some good examples here, but let's be real. The best movie hair. Only one guy does it. Steven Seagal, the ponytail. Oh, no. uh, one inch ponytail. It's the oil. It's, it's not even the ponytail. It's the oil. The sheer volume of oil in his hair. I mean, honestly, they probably had to dig wells just for I his mean, hair I mean, I mean, just I'm just now looking at the cover of your book because it's sitting in front of me and there's a lot of hair in, the, in this story. There you have, is a lot of hair. You've got the, the Chuck Norris sort of, let's be honest, it's a mullet. Yeah. You have the mullet. Yeah. You have the sort of flat top. high, high flat top of, of Dolph Lundgren mm. and kind of Arnie a lot of the time as well mm. and you've got the swooshiness of, of still Van Damme in Hard Target oh boy <laughs> he, talk uh, about oily hair the greasy samurai look yeah um, but no Seagal's ponytail come on Seagal's a moment ponytail. a moment's reflection on that he never even outgrew it though. so under siege he doesn't have it because presumably the navy don't go in for ponytails but other than that he was pretty consistent yeah. with the ponytail in everything he did yeah he insisted on it yeah. <laughs> well. for good or ill well exactly. I think we can probably answer that one I can't believe we just mentioned Stephen Bloody Seagal in the, in the context yeah. of the best hair. It, I'm sorry, I won't upsetting. mention him again. Oh, then, boy. I promise. Yeah, that that's is, it now. That is the thing that happened. Um, and of course, look, no disrespect to the hairless 
I mean, Mark Strong, that is a perfectly shaped Mark person. Strong, you know I, I mean? always think Willis and Statham have arguably the best cranial architecture mm. of any men on screen. <laughs> they're, they're, it, it, would, it seems weird when you see them with hair. Yeah, Remember like, that bit in Spy where Statham puts a wig on? Just, yeah. just stop yeah. it. Really just don't do it. Do it. No. Don't, don't ever do it. It's just, no, they have, they have excellent skull aesthetic. So yeah. there you go. Hair or no hair, just, you know, tousle it. That's the only thing that matters. Okay, I think that we have answered not just the question that was actually asked to us by readers, <laughs> but also the one we set for ourselves. Uh, while we have been plugging things, you've got to please indulge me a little bit longer because the Empire Podcast is going to be live as part of the London Podcast Festival on September 9th at King's Place in London. And I believe there are still some tickets left to come and see us uh, along in person. And we have also now put streaming tickets on sale so that if health, wealth or geography prevent you from joining us in person, you can still now be there in spirit. So please go along to kingsplace.co.uk and have a look for us there. And if that weren't enough, we're also going to be doing another live show on September 14th in conjunction with Drunk Women Solving Crimes. So this show, which we're terming Drunk Women and Teetotal Nerds Solving Crimes, <laughs> uh, is once again at King's Place, once again part of the London uh, Podcast Festival, and it will, I think, be a right giggle, if only because they are professional yeah. comedians and we are professional idiots. Yes. So, you know, hopefully the two together will be fun. Um, I think our chances of crime solving, actually, Slim are, to none. Yeah, pretty Even much if we are ripped to the tits on sherbet and Diet Coke. Exactly, but yeah. it should be a good laugh. So September 14th for that, September 9th for the Empire Podcast. And if you listen to this very fast once it's put up, you may still have time to get a ticket to Pilot's 250th show, which is this weekend, also at King's Place. On Saturday, yeah. On Saturday. If you're listening after Saturday, then you've missed it. But my God, it was an incredible triumph and people are still talking about That's how brilliant it went. Yeah, yeah. Oh. In fact, we are, I believe, very, very, very nearly sold out. There's only a few tickets, literally a few tickets left. So, Who are the guests? Uh, we have Ricky Gervais joining Ooh. us. We have big Tom Davis joining us as well. Uh, and we also have a couple of other surprise mm. guests coming. Surprises. So, yes. Nice. Exciting. Okay, so that is it for the uh, for the plugging and also for the questions. And of course, if you would like to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast and treated with the same level of incisiveness uh, <laughs> as today, then please do get in touch. Or, of course, you can wait for a panicked shout out as per usual from whoever is hosting. Okay, with that in mind, it is time now, I think, for a guest. And we're going to start with Alex Winter, the Bill and Ted star who has developed a very successful sideline in making extremely thoughtful and insightful documentaries, with a particular line in talking about tech. So following on from the likes of Downloaded and Deep Web is the YouTube effect, which looks at, uh, I mean, honestly, the effects of YouTube uh, on all of us. Here is Alex Winter, so please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of the YouTube Effect, Mr. Alex Winter. How are you, sir? I am well. It's good to be here. Where, where is here at the moment? Uh, we're both in London, but we're both we're, 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 we're separated. <laughs> I'm in Soho, which is where I, I'm. I'm very happy. Uh, I used to have an office here, literally across the street, and uh, I uh, often stay in Brighton, the heart of town, when I'm here. Okay, so so you would be a very very good person to take a tour around Soho with. I'm guessing. Uh, probably yes. I've uh, I, I've haunted these these alleys and streets and and know them probably too well for my own good. Actually, yeah. <laughs> how, long, how long did you have a, uh, an office for over here? I was over here. Um, I was partnered with a, produ- a commercial production company here uh, and made TV commercials all over all over the world, but out of the European market from around ninety. 394 to like 2002 like almost that 10 year period and oh, wow. 
and I was in Soho the whole time. So okay. So every time you come back, it's just it's just changed a little bit more. Now the Elizabeth Line is here. Dean Street's com- com- transformed completely. It's all it's all new. It has. It yeah. It is and it isn't. I mean, it's there's a, it's amazing to me. There's a lot that's still here. Um, there's a lot that's gone, obviously. But the soul of the place is still very similar. And I was born here, and I have um, you know early memories of of the swinging end of the swinging sixties into the early seventies in in London. Uh, and that was, of course, quite different. Um, but uh, but you know the things that are here are, are 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 very much you know Rodney Scotts and certain you know landmarks like that that have always been here and are just the same. I, I know also you've just come back from Cambridge where you were at the. Cambridge uh, Disinformation Conference. Uh, uh, first of all, how could you trust anything you heard at that, <laughs> at that, that conference? <laughs> well, how can you trust anything you hear, period? But, <laughs> True, right. Um, it was an extraordinary group of people. Um, it was a, a fairly large event over uh, several days, and uh, leaders in in the technology sector, in, the, in academia, uh, in law, in journalism, uh, discussing the very significant issue of the spread of disinformation and and its threat to democracies around the world and the rise of authoritarianism around the world, real you know real world problems um, that certainly the doc we made uh, addresses. So we presented the film there uh, one night during the conference and had a very robust discussion about these issues involving the film. It was it was amazing actually. And Cambridge is so beautiful, and that campus uh, one could call it a campus is is so extraordinary. I mean, it's really unpar- unparalleled. Uh, so we had a lot of fun just bopping around town when we weren't talking about the end of the world. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Uh, were those discussions sobering? Were they depressing? Or did you leave those those discussions with a little bit of, of hope? Because battling disinformation is, is going to be huge over the next, well, it already is huge, but it's going to be huge over the next few years. It is going to be huge over the next few years. We're, in, we're entering another election cycle in the US. It's going to be a madhouse. Um, 23 and 24 are going to be, the rest of 23 and 24 are going to be crazy. Um, it was all of the above. I mean, it was optimistic. It was terrifying. Uh, it was depressing. It was sobering. It was inspiring. It was kind of all of those things. I, I think for myself, because I've been around a lot of people in this world for a long time, um, I tend to be more on the long-term optimistic side because I just know there are so many brilliant minds at work uh, looking for solutions and fighting for solutions uh, to these problems. But I, I'm not um, Pollyanna-ish about uh, the the immediate future. I think it's going to be a little bumpy. I think we're definitely heading into – I mean, we have this huge strike in Hollywood right now that is absolutely related to technology and AI and uh, sort of the the inequality of of the tech sector in many ways. Uh, it's a labor crisis that's impacting people around the world, not just in my industry. So we're already seeing the challenges that are coming from this new industrial revolution, this technological revolution that we're in. Well, what can be done? How can you combat that? Uh, there are many things that one can do. I don't think there's a one panacea um, that, you know, I think that long term, some of these companies are too big and should get broken up. I think we should be looking at, uh, at making these companies more accountable, which means more transparent. We don't know enough about their data. We don't know enough about their algorithms. We don't know enough about, about what they are collecting. Uh, we don't know enough about how they, about their money. Um, 
And that goes for the entertainment industry companies as well as just the big uh, social media and media platforms and, and data platforms and companies. So uh, accountability, transparency, safeguards, I think, are all things these companies need to be doing. And they make an enormous amount of excuses for why they don't want to do any of those things because it would impact their profit, which it would. They would make a little less money um, mm. if they didn't allow very harmful content to be monetized. And that is a big problem. And that is a big, one of the big things we get into with our film. Um, but there's many things one can do. I mean, I think also not treating them more as products than as these kind of amorphous technological black boxes, where if someone is harmed by something that happens via platform, sue that platform for harm. That is just like the automotive companies were getting sued for people flying through windshields because no one had invented the seatbelt yet. It's very much the same. So let's talk a little bit about the documentary. I know you were at, you're in Cambridge with with Gail Ann Hurd, who produced it. What was your take? I mean, what, how did you how did you pitch essentially for this? Um, I didn't actually. Um, Gail literally they emailed me and asked me to do it with them. Um, they had seen uh, other tech docs of mine, mm -hmm. and they knew my POV. Uh, and I think that Gail felt that our POVs aligned, yeah. which it turned out they did. Um, and collaborations are, are, it's a very important that you, that you have, that you share, um, the same POV, even if not a precisely the same vision. Uh, and we don't, you know, see eye to eye on absolutely everything, but we don't have any hard disagreements anywhere. And she's amazing. And, uh, I was very eager to work with her, but it was also, um, for me, I'd been around this space a very long time and had been thinking a lot about the conundrum of these monopolies and how they do a lot of good um, and how they do a lot of harm. And, and those sort of internal paradoxes or conflicts are, are generally what drive me to make documentaries. Um, mm -hmm. The subjects that I'm interested in tend to be uh, not black and white. Um, which is why I tend to not make crime docs because it's like usually there's a bad guy who kill, who's killing good guys and that's what your movie's about. Um, uh, so it was a, it was opportune for me. Um, I, I mean, I still had to go and get funding and do all the, you know, we had to do all the heavy lifting to get the thing made, but to, to know that, that, you know, she had a really deep Rolodex. I have a really deep Rolodex in terms of the technology sector. I knew that by pairing up it would be a pretty powerful, um, team. And, and it was, it was amazing to work with her on this. Where did you start? Uh, several, like, where are we? I mean, we started right as COVID was about to kick off. So, um, and that really drove a lot. It made the making the film very challenging because I'm normally dropping in everywhere around the world and talking to my subjects and, and kind of inhabiting their world with them. Uh, and because of COVID, I could not do that. I had to shoot all of it remotely. Uh, I was there. I was on a laptop, like literally perched next to the camera. Um, but I wasn't physically there. I couldn't be. Uh, there were a lot of tech challenges making the film, but also um, those challenges were also what gave us our narrative because the movie was very much about technology's role in uh, in how the world got to where it was in 2020, um, which was a crazy place. And it's really the new normal. I think we came out of 2020 with this proliferation of disinformation with the rise of of kind of right wing autocracies, uh, with a lot of you know with with the harms caused by COVID, uh, vax denying um, disinformation, and people getting killed because they weren't 
they were sort of consuming, you know, disinformation and not knowing how to take care of themselves. Um, and a lot of that was driven by technology and a lot of that was driven by YouTube. So it became a, a very obvious nexus point for the narrative, uh, you know, once we got to that point in the story. What about uh, participation, cooperation, pushback from YouTube, all of the above? Um, I didn't really get pushback because I was really clear with them about what I was doing. And, and to be fair to Google, um, who really is who owns YouTube, yeah. um, and it's really their company. Uh, look, they've, they have been criticized and they have had, you know, many studies and analyses and articles written about the various things they're doing. Um, so when I approached them, I was very honest with them that I was, I was not going to make, you know, a salacious takedown, which isn't what I do anyway. Um, I have enormous respect for a lot of people at Google and at YouTube and at all these tech companies. And I think they have, um, uh, in many ways, uh, you know, up until they hit a brick wall of, of incentive profit issues, uh, tried to make, you know, fixes within their company. But I also think that those, those platforms have done an enormous amount of good. And I think that they're, they continue to do an enormous amount of good. And I think they're necessary. I have three boys that I raise and all of them are on YouTube all the time. And I have not pulled them off platform and they're all fine. None of them got red pilled. Um, <laughs> so I, I was very clear with them that, that, uh, you know, I was going to be looking at the harms as well as at the positives. And uh, I just think if you're honest with people about what you're doing. Um, but again, I think there's certain types of journalistic movies or, or documentaries or stories that have to be disingenuous in order to like, you know, break a scandal or something. And, and so I wouldn't disparage that in all cases, but I, I don't tend to tell those kinds of stories. What's your personal YouTube usage look like? Um, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's kind of my point in the doc is is YouTube is so misunderstood by the public um, and the media because people think of it as the DIY thing or they think of it as the cat video thing or they think of it as a social media platform, which it really isn't. They think of it as as kind of a repository for for human, you know, uh, recorded archive. They think of it as where they go for their music or where they go to watch their TV shows or their movies where they get their news. It's a search function. And the fact is it's every single one of those things. And it's being consumed by more people than any other media platform on the planet by an order of magnitude. So I'm on YouTube for all of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's really, it is really, the internet is the most pervasive information tool on the planet. And YouTube is the most consumed information tool on the planet. Google is the number one most viewed website on the world. YouTube in the world, YouTube is number two, and YouTube is a visual platform, so it has enormous power because it's not text based. Um, so I'm on it for everything. I mean, it's it's everything. It's it's kind of the whole ball of wax, you know. So it's I'll listen to music there, or watch content there, or see a piece of film, or go back to like a an old favorite film. I won't be able to find it anywhere but YouTube. Um, you know, uh, even old TV shows that, that, I mean, there's TV shows I've done that aren't on, they're the only place you can see the idiot box. Our TV show is on YouTube. I think the only place you can see freaked is on YouTube. Um, so God bless YouTube. <laughs> uh, so honestly, I, I mean, I'm on it all the time. There, there are influencers like ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn's, um, channel that are, are very important to me and, and have very important things to say. And, uh, and I'm on YouTube watching ContraPoints. 
Uh, I do want to talk uh, uh, very quickly, if we can, about about your directorial career because it is fascinating. It's been thirty thirty years now since Freaked, uh, yeah, and it's ten years since downloaded. And you know, this 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 pivot that you've made as a director, I think, is really really interesting. But was it planned, or was it just something that emerged organically? It kind of emerged organically to the degree that that I started making films when I was a little kid, like a lot of filmmakers. I had an eight mil camera and, and like it recruited all of my friends, and we had like a little acting troupe, and we made movies all the time. When I was like between like eight and twelve, and um, and so when I started acting professionally, were a lot like I was on Broadway from like thirteen all the way to high school the entire time into long running Broadway shows. I was saving my money up for film school. I wasn't saving it up for for drama school. And I, and I left the, I, I quit act, acting many times in my life to make films. And the first time was at 18. I went to NYU film school and I came out of film school and I, I love acting. So I can, I was continuing to act as my job and I did lost boys and bill and Ted and all that. Um, but then we, you know, Tom Stern, my directing partner at the time, we parlayed that into um, our show, the idiot box. And then we made freak together um, and Freaked for me was kind of the culmination of that period of my acting career. Like that was the only thing that was intentional. I really wanted to take a break. I didn't want to just act. I wanted to be able to write and direct. And I knew that there was no way that was going to happen if I allowed my acting career to continue. Um, so I put it to bed. I literally, I got rid of my acting agents, you know, nicely, but I was like, no, I'm not auditioning for anything anymore. I'm going to just, and I moved to the UK basically by way of New York and started, you know, started up a commercial production company with a couple of partners here in London. And, and I wrote movies and, and directed commercials. And that's when I, you know, I made fever, uh, the film we're showing at Prince Charles actually, um, uh, which went to Cannes and and sort of gave me the impetus to start to find my directing voice. Um, so it was really, it, it was organic in that way. Um, the only thing is that at a certain point, I knew I wanted to act again just for my own artistic interest. Um, so I started training again about 15 years ago, and and uh, which was good because a good decade of acting training like, made me <laughs> gave me the ability to do to play Bill again after 25 years. Um, it's, it's a deceptively hard guy to play because he's so different from who I am. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I I kind of you know I'm sort of at a point in my life where I'm I'm keeping my life open to all of it. Um, and I'm training a lot in the acting space and the vocal space and things like that. Uh, but I like doing all of it. Um, and I think I've found a work life balance that allows me to do that, which is not easy. It's taken me a while to figure that out. That's fascinating to me it, it, that the fact that you're still training. So, cause you know, you're, you're still, you still feel you have stuff to learn, stuff to perfect. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I do. And I like training because you do get better. Um, and that's one of the reasons I like making documentaries is you learn, like you learn so much making every documentary you're dealing, you're not the smartest guy in the room, unless you're a fool, right? <laughs> you should not be the smartest guy in the room or the smartest person in the work in the room. If you're making a documentary, you should, you should be finding the smartest people and talking to them. And, uh, so I always come out of these things with so much, so much of an expansion of my, of my worldview. Um, but I like to get better. I mean, I like growth. And I, the thing, one of the things I like about the arts and one of the things I love about acting is, you know, there's a lot of times when you're making films and every filmmaker knows this where you just can't get something off the ground. I think I had four major projects after fever that I just could not get financed. And, 
um, with acting, you can always act. And you may not be acting for millions of people, but you can train. You can work on your voice. You can be doing scene study. And it's an art, so it's en- it's enjoyable. It's gratifying. So I started doing that because it was I just missed doing scenes. And I was like, during COVID, I was doing Shakespeare, you know, because I had never done a lot of Shakespeare. And I love Shakespeare. So I started doing with my coach, you know, we'd go from one play to another. And uh, it was a great way to be in COVID. Uh, Alex, it's always a pleasure talking to you, uh, and thanks so much Likewise. for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Always good to be here. Okay, time now for some movie news. Um, is there any? I mean, Warrior Nun, James, tell me <laughs> what's I am, happening with I am Warrior torn, Nun. like okay. Natalie Imbruglia, and I'm unsure whether I should save this clearly TV-centric information for the Live Pilot podcast, or because it's now films, it's now whether films. it finds a more natural home here on the mm. Empire podcast. So I'm just going to do both, because who can have enough of Warrior Nun? So Pelompire. Indeed. Hybrid. Indeed. Uh, so yeah, Warrior Nun, which uh, is the most Spanish show on television, uh, except it's not actually in Spanish, uh, was a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It ran for two seasons on Netflix. Yes. It got cancelled. Yes. And there was what can only be described as a grassroots upswelling of revolt and horrific, you know, Nurse. disquiet. Just Nurse. from you. Actually. Horrific Nurse, from largely you. from me. Yeah. Uh, and amazingly, because this never happens. Like, that, like, everyone kicks off when their shows get cancelled. No one gives a fuck. Netflix, <laughs> least of all, because they swing the cancellation acts all the time. And yet, in this particular case, it has been given a new lease of life. And But rather than coming back for a fourth season, or third season, in fact, rather than coming back for a third season, it is coming back as three feature films. Amazing. Warrior Nun 1, Warrior Nun 2, and presumably <laughs> Warrior Nun 3. Wow. Uh, we don't know where they're dropping, though. So are they going to another streaming service? Are they getting theatrical releases? I doubt it, but you never know. Look, I'm not going to be drawn into the quality of the show. But it's, it's a lot of fun. Like, I watched the whole of season one and had an absolute riot with it. I never finished season two. Um, but to be fair, it had been cancelled by the time I started it. Yeah. So, you that know. always takes the shine off. Yeah. It's still on, though, though, right? They haven't like No, no, it's still it. available, a... as is my beloved Fate the Wink saga. But, uh, you know, all these things oh, uh, oh, <laughs> have to come to an end. Yeah. So yeah, YA, nuns, demons, all the good stuff. Why do you think why do you guys think this has uh created a wimple hive? <laughs> um why why are people so obsessed and so It's fervent? hard to say. I think there was a very big LGBTQ audience for this one. Uh and I think also it, it had a lot of energy. There was great chemistry between the cast. Mm. I think it was silly, but it was aware that it was silly. Yeah, and, and it's I think, a, it's got some cool images and stuff. They've got does. some really great locations. Yeah. So it kind of had that um, you know, leaned into the Catholic iconography but did did so quite well in a way that a lot of um, other shows have, I think, struggled with a bit over yeah. time. I think, yeah. And it, I mean, they use the locations very, mm. very well. And I love the fact that, you know, she's basically a girl who has an angel's halo embedded in her back and has to fight demons. I mean, what's not to love about this premise? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Someone who grew up in Buffy, it's, you know, 10 out of 10. And do you next. know what? I honestly think, and I genuinely think this is one of the reasons why this has done well, is it's called Warrior Nun. Yeah. And we reviewed this on Pilot partly for one reason and one reason only, because it was called Warrior Nun. And I was like, I don't know what the show is. I don't know where it's from, but fuck me if we're not watching it because it's called Warrior Nun. And I feel like it should be on every cover that we do. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, fingers crossed, every other cover can be. You'll have got three Warrior Nun covers in your future, Nick. It's all, it's <laughs> yes. all sorting itself out. Also this week uh, came the Maestro trailer. Now, this is the mm. Bradley Cooper biopic about Leonard Bernstein, um, not to be confused with Elmer Bernstein. One was uh, Bernstein West, one was Bernstein East, um, and uh, and uh, also starring Carrie Mulligan. And this mm. film, this trailer, 
got an immediate reaction, mostly because he's wearing a prosthetic nose. Mm, yeah. Now, what do we think about the actual trailer? Anybody? <laughs> they can't have been expected. I mean, it's the elephant that knows is the elephant in the room. Is that, is that a, a, a very tangled metaphor? But yeah, they can't have been expecting that because this was like the big Oscar yeah. kind of front runner. I mean, just look at the producers. It's it's Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese, and Steven Spielberg producing. Am I right about Clint Eastwood? I Pretty sure so. he is. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's like a powerhouse of people are behind this. Yeah. And um, Bradley Cooper's been working on it for a very long time. He directs it, as well as starring, I should imagine. Yeah. yeah, it was a very coveted role. Like Jake Gyllenhaal famously yeah. gunned mm -hmm. for it and really wanted it. Um, was disappointed when he didn't get it. And um, uh, I think Steven Spielberg personally chose Bradley Cooper. There's a story about about him saying, you're going to direct um, Maestro. So yeah, they, that's a long way of saying like they kind of expected the trailer to get this no, reaction. Yeah. I would think so. not. But I thought I think it looks very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bradley Cooper. I loved A Star Is Born. I'm really excited to see what he's going to do on a directorial level. But you put him together with Carrie Mulligan on screen. I mean, even the little trailer that we saw, the chemistry between them, you can absolutely see it. So I'm very excited. Also, just the musical element of the movie. You know, I'm gonna wrap that up too. Obviously, so. <laughs> but also, I mean, I think you know, so it does center on that relationship, mm -hmm. on their 25 year, I think, marriage and their kids. Um, so it's important that, you know, that kind of leaps off the screen at you, isn't it? It's, it's, it's got to work. Um, I can't see uh, Clint Eastwood among the producers I listed, but I may be wrong. Well, he was so up. involved in The Star is Born, mm. so that might be where mm -hmm. that's come from. I, I, and also it's only IMDb, so I can't be sure I'm right. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. The, 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 I didn't think the nose looked great. I didn't think he needed it, but, you know... Uh, apparently, Bernstein's children are cool with it. And they think, are. think that it heightens the 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 likeness that he has for their father. Does it though? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I don't agree, uh, but you know, Leonard Bernstein doesn't have a particularly large nose. It feels like it. I don't know that. I don't know that the verisimilitude is there. Let me, let me just say that. Fair but then I, should, I also I will concede his kids probably know what he looks like better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to concede that point right here, right wow. now. Wow, wow, that's, I'm that's big impressive. enough to to let that go. <laughs> yes, well, so we shall see. I guess more uh, towards the end of the year if this comes out on schedule, given that everything is currently moving. Around. Who knows. Who knows? <laughs> As some uh, eagle-eyed viewers uh, on Twitter pointed out this week, there was no Aquaman 2 trailer with Blue Beetle, which you might have expected mm. for something to write in just a few months. Yeah. So maybe that is going back as well, given the, the mm. strikes, the uh, WGA and yeah. SAG after a strikes continue. Mm -hmm. The Amptba has been uh, at least admitting to having talks, but have perhaps been giving a rather one-sided impression of those talks. Mm -hmm. um, and the Oscars might. I mean, because Maestro feels so sort of so Oscar-y. Yeah. Um, it couldn't be any more Oscar-y. I smell Oscars, etc. But um, yeah, do you think there's any chance they'll move the Oscars back? Well, the... the yeah, well, the Emmys have gone back to next Emmys year, haven't they? So yeah, I'd say there's a very good chance, depending Absolutely. on when it gets resolved, right? Because I feel mm. like a lot of films like Dune is... Dune uh, is scheduled for... <laughs> Oscar frontrunner Dune. <laughs> Oscar frontrunner Dune is uh, scheduled for November release. Honestly, I swear to God, if the strike is still going on in November, that film is not coming out. Nope. Yeah. Uh, even though they, you know, we don't know, they haven't announced anything, my feeling is that you don't do that. If you've got stars like Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya... Mm. You want them front and center, and if you can't do that, you push the release. And I think I a lot of films are going to interesting. Happen. So I guess people are waiting to see if any of the movies coming out without star publicity yeah. actually mm -hmm. do really well. Yeah. So we got Oppenheimer and Barbie that would like the last two to get a lot of publicity. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this this week I think is going to be a bit of a test of that because you mm. have um, Blue Beetle. Now we're, we're obviously going to be talking about that in the reviews section, and for 
for all I have some, you know, um, reservations about the film, I will say that it has got to suck for its young stars. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Sholo um, Maridueña mm. to be to be cast in this role, to be the lead of a big DC film, and to then not at all be able to promote it yeah. has hey, got to be he just He got to speak to Empire. He did. That's, That's all he wanted. That's that why he made the film. Thing. He got that to speak to us twice. <laughs> He's like, I'm done. I'm done with press. But, but you know, it's, it's, so it, 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 yeah. look, I'm, no one, everyone knows this sucks for cast. This sucks for writers. This sucks for everybody. This sucks for oh. all the other people in LA who can't work right now and all over the world who can't work mm. right now because films are on hiatus. The hope is that all of those people benefit from these strikes and that everyone gets a fairer deal moving forward. Mm -hmm. So we've got to kind of hope for that. I imagine yeah. some actors, on the other hand, are quite pleased. I'm, I, I'm just speculating, <laughs> but maybe Jason Statham was happy that he didn't have to talk about Meg 2 for hundreds of hours. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he can't wait to talk it's about it. It's a Meg. You're a snack. Uh, yes. he, he it's have, a snake. It's a shark. What else do you want? He did have, I mean, did have the best tagline of the year so far. I think new Meg, old chum. Superb, good marketing. Superb good marketing. Yeah. Tagline. That is yeah. good. But talking about box offices and, and the, you know, it, it emerged or has emerged recently that both Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny are looking to lose $100 million apiece, which is mm. absolutely brutal, in particular in Mission's case. Yeah. Indy. Yeah. Mm, yeah. But, but for Mission, that's just gutting. Because, I, you know, you talk about Barbenheimer as much as you like, and Oppenheimer is a great film, but I would say if there was one film you had to see in the cinema and you wanted to experience in IMAX... It was fucking Mission Impossible more than Oppenheimer, right? Especially the last half an hour to an hour. I mean, right? Uh, Uncharted 2 and then Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. The two greatest train-based action scenes. But it's no, an injustice. It's, no, it needs to be yeah. seen. And, it's an and, injustice. Yeah. You know, just the sight of Tom Cruise running across an airport roof, which oh my is God. one of my favourite shots. Oh my I'm God. just like, how is he doing yeah. it? He's 60. <laughs> but we need to get a stitch. Yeah. We're talking about August maybe not being the strongest month. Do you think Mission should have waited? The problem with August I, releases historically has been that if you wait until August, um, you miss the window to get your DVD out by Christmas. Uh, now, I don't know how much of a factor that yeah. still is, but it used to be that the theatrical window meant that August releases weren't in the shop for Christmas. Now, now I don't know if that's still a factor. And, mm. and, and yes, if I had been in charge of, if I had been on the Mission Impossible's team, yeah, maybe they could should, could have pulled it forward a week or two or moved it back a week I think or two May, or done something. I think it could have been a May one. I, I mm. think the problem with August is you, by that point, people have kind of got blockbuster fatigue and yeah. it's mm. like you've had mm. a lot of big noisy films mm. and so putting... But I think, yeah, it, who who could have predicted this though? I yeah. mean, genuinely, in, in hindsight, you go, yeah, of course Oppenheimer was going to make almost a billion. But I, it's like, I wouldn't have predicted that. But no and one, Barbie no one, over, and, yeah. and no one well, with Barbie as well, like no one had any idea. But I must admit, like, so I, did, I, hadn't, I wasn't on when you reviewed Barbie and I hadn't seen it because I missed the screening, but I have seen it since... Fuck me, Barbie's good. Yeah, it's uh, it is such a good film. I am very much team Barbie. Not that I disliked Oppenheimer at all, but Barbie is a film I will revisit. I can see many, many times in the future. So, just just um, for people listening, Barbie is currently at uh, nearly one point two billion. Yes, and Oppenheimer is at six hundred and fifty three. Uh, million, which is to be fair, still very, very which good. Yeah. They're saying it's um, it's predicted to get nine hundred million. Yeah, mm. and given that yeah. it is a three-hour, incredibly <laughs> morose film about death yeah. and the end of life on Earth, um, you know, it's fair not bad. No, no, not bad shake okay, for some of Let's not take yeah. away from Barbie at the yeah. same time, guys. <laughs> no. Come on. Here. And by the way, speaking of Barbie, I think this week. It crossed the milestone. I think it eclipsed the Dark Knight domestically. It did, yes, yes, it did. That is 
insane no, on the, so many no, levels. In the best way. In the there's best a, way. Look, there's been a whole load of Batman films. There's only been yeah. one Barbie live-action yeah. film. No, the reason yeah. I mentioned Oppenheimer and not Barbie is that Barbie, I think people kind of felt it in the water that Barbie was going to be absolutely mm. giant. But I, think I it was... said it was going to get a billion on this podcast and was, mm. was are you really? <laughs> <laughs> you got kenned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Helen, you are kin off. Uh, <laughs> I need to order that jumper already. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like to think that Barbie was also really just a promotional tool for Nick's book because obviously Ken takes his aesthetic from Stallone's fur coat yeah. as featured yeah. in your and book. fur coat yeah. does feature in your yeah. book. And I've written a little thing about that exact thing in the New York Empire. So all the worlds are colliding. Yeah, um, so yes, there is no escape from Stallone's fur coats. Um, <laughs> but, but yes, but, at, the, at the moment, both, main, both Mission and Indiana Jones are well behind Oppenheimer. Indy is only just over half what Oppenheimer has. Yeah. Which is it, crazy. It was is a freak it? thing with Barbie and Oppenheimer, though, right? Because they're the yeah. diametrically opposed, and I think that yes. fed off. So it's kind 100%. of like you've got a fuel. They could not be any more different, and so they're fueling each other. And nobody and you, saw that coming, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like fission. It's almost like Oppenheimer, <laughs> one of his experiments. Whoa, yeah. dude, that is <laughs> yeah. cool. It's trippy. Split this cinema-going no, atom. Yeah. I, I, I think... I think I think that's part of it. I think absolutely nobody saw the Barbenheimer phenomenon becoming as big as it did. I think I think that uh, Mission Impossible got very blindsided by that mm. um, because only having a week before those two was was bad. But you know, we, we talked about this with Chris yesterday, James, and yeah. and he was correctly pointing out that Mission was already being called a bit of an underperform before mm. those two came along and steamrollered it. Mm. Um, and the only thing I can think is that um, first of all, it maybe it was too well advertised too early. I mean, we mm. were getting trailers for that last year. People mm, didn't true. know when it was coming out. Um, and and so maybe there was an element of fatigue. And also maybe it didn't have quite as euphoric reviews as something like Maverick last year did. Mm. So I, maybe it didn't feel quite as essential. I think it's just the novelty factor. I think people mm. at the moment want something that feels very fresh. And Mission, while it's absolutely fantastic, machine-tooled, brilliant entertainment, mm. does kind of like we've already had six of them and it's the same team yeah. making yeah. it. And so you're getting something that's really, really fun and entertaining, but it's not like the, it's, not the, it's not as, like seeing yeah, Barbie wild, where you've yeah. never seen anything like it before. Do you think the part one also doesn't help him? Yeah, very possibly. I think so too. Yeah. Mm. I heard people we, zinging Spider-Verse when yes. they realized that it was essentially well, Spider- a part one. Yeah, so. I mean, Mission actually, to to be fair to Mission, it, it it's actually a really rounded story. Obviously, mm-hmm. it leads yeah. you halfway through the story, but it feels entirely satisfying. It like. does, yeah. Whereas I think Spider-Verse, for me, kind of felt like it just ended so at a random point. Like, yeah. It felt like a bit like an end of season finale. <laughs> yeah, Because I, I went into that with the knowledge that it was a part one. It feels like many people didn't because they changed it from across the Spider-Verse part one to beyond the, yeah. to yeah, in, in yeah. Um, but so it's, it's you so know yeah. it's several it's several places ahead of Mission on the yearly box office charts at this point mm. so maybe that worked not having the part yeah. one and, and mm. the same way June didn't call itself part one on the poster so no, it didn't. had to get in you, you the got cinema. in there hang on a minute <laughs> half a film I've already won a ticket uh, so, yeah. but anyway but I do think the other thing I would say is that both of these films uh, a large part of the reason that they've lost as much as they've lost and that their budgets are as big as they are purported to be mm. is because they tried to do the right thing by crews and pay them. Certainly in the, in the case of Mission, they tried to pay them during the COVID shutdowns. Mm. They also mm. then tried to push on through COVID, which involved a huge amount of you know relocation, mm-hmm. extra precautions taking, extra social distancing, all of this extra level of complication and mm. logistics that added a huge amount to the budget that won't necessarily be reflected, for example, in Dead Reckoning Part 2, that wouldn't be reflected if you did another indie, God forbid, right now. 
um, you know, it wasn't just sort of wild spending or anything like that. It was very much looking out for people in COVID times. Um, so we've got to give them some credit for that and, and some degree of, you know, uh, not not kicking them. Mm. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's not like cheap to borrow a train. They're both <laughs> no. a big train sequence. They're very expensive. You have to pay. Look how much the sandwiches cost. In the, oh my you know, god, that was what the craft yeah. services was. No wonder it was so high. Uh, last Voyage of the Demeter has sunk. That's unfortunate. That's a shame. So it didn't have a great time at the US box office, but more importantly, I don't know when slash if we're getting it over here. Which is like, a real bummer. Yeah. Because, like, I like, want to see it. Yeah, like apparently Guillermo del Toro's really loving it on Twitter. Yeah, it's, it's, apparently it's really good. Yeah. I did see somebody good. say they should have called it Blood Vessel. Which would have oh, <laughs> that would have been which good. Was surely added to hundred million dollars oh. to the title. Where were you when this when they were in the writing? <laughs> oh, I can't there, take uh, any There are some that. there are some incredible alternate titles out there, but um, but yeah, I'm I look I'm looking forward to it. Maybe we'll get it around yeah. spooky season. It's, we'll have a, it's a fallen little... through the cracks due to the E1 sale, hasn't it? Oh. So that's why it's it doesn't really have a date or really any plans to have one at the moment. So, well, fingers crossed, we get it on the big screen and not just on but the screen. It's a bad year, bad year for Vlad. He's had to poor Dracula. He needs a new agent. Um, but yeah, no. Apparently, both decent films and haven't connected for whatever reason. So film. wait, somebody else is doing one, aren't they? Robert Eggers. Oh, that's a Nosferatu, Nosferatu film, which of course Nosferatu. is completely unreleated to Dracula. Dracula's everybody. nephew. And Nosferatu <laughs> wasn't an attempt to get around Dracula copyright. Okay. Isn't Dra- I mean? I was Dracula. Presumably, was in copyright then. It's Correct. very much not now. That's why Nosferatu uh, was yeah. uh, a very thinly veiled Dracula adaptation. Now you sly dog. <laughs> I saw some people on Twitter saying it's so dumb. Dracula on a boat, forgetting that yeah. Dracula is on a boat. Yeah, the Demeter is a thing in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. In it fact, was, it was a whole the, uh, episode of that yeah, BBC. The Clay Bang version of it. Yeah. That's the best part of the show is yeah. when he's on the boat. It was one of the two good episodes. Yeah, before the third one. And then there was a one. terrible third episode, which oh. is... Oh. He was very good Dracula. He was, he was great. Yeah. I was super bang into back, those yeah. two, two first episodes and then the third one happened and yeah. I've never hated anything more. 100%, yeah. <laughs> The other news this week, if we can call it that, was Wonder Woman 3. There have been slightly conflicting reports coming out. So yeah. Gal Gadot, uh, when she was still able to talk about things before the strike, was talking about pe- things to people about Heart of Stone, her Netflix film that came out last week, and um, and seemed to think that Wonder Woman 3 was something that James Gunn and Peter Sar- uh, Safran were open to. And that has been rather scotched again this week, and they've said, no, mm. it's not in development. Which is not to say they're not open to it, I guess. So there's potential, you know, wiggle room between the two statements. But uh. it just feels weird. Like the mixed messaging with Warner Bros. and DC, it feels very reminiscent of Henry Cavill. Um, you know, saying that I'm a Superman, I'm going to drop the Witcher, I'm going to go on Instagram, make this big announcement, and then hold on, he's not Superman and he's not going to be returning as Superman. Now Gal Gadot is making all these statements and now they're being rebuffed. It's just like, where, where's the where's the email chain here yeah. to get this all in order? Because it's a, it feels weird. We're in a very weird place with DC, where everyone is so watching so intently and interpreting not only what James Gunn says on social media, but what mm. he doesn't reply to. Mm. Right. And I saw someone going, "He didn't reply to that <laughs> from some like guy with one follower," mm. and that means that Superman is do- doing this. And so, yeah, it's there's so much speculation and rumor out there. It's I, mean, completely- I, I saw him posting on I think Instagram about uh, a great new Wonder Woman uh, comic. You know, so you're like, oh, is it, is it this? Is this what he wants to do with Wonder Woman? You know, and just the, the, the speculation is feverish. And of course, A, he can't be writing anything right now. Mm-hmm. And B, you know, give him time to announce his things has, as he goes. What if he has a really good idea, but he's like not allowed to write it down? Write he's it just down. got to try and remember it. Can he do a voice note? Can he do a voice oh. note and remember it for later? Or does that oh. count as recording it? 
Mm. Anyway. Can I ask a question? Do mm. we still want to see Gal Gadot back as this character, given everything that DC looked to be doing in terms of refreshing this thing? I don't know, man. I don't know what they're doing in terms of refreshing it, so I'm yeah. kind of like... They got, they're getting a new Superman. They presumably are not going to stick with George Clooney. <laughs> Or Batman. <laughs> I hope they do. I hope they do. So, new Superman, new Batman, but you're going to stick with Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman? If you're going to start fresh, just start fresh the whole way. Uh, I, I don't know. Say. I would like to see more Wonder Woman, and I don't want her that, to absolutely. be recast feels, this soon, but I don't know. Yeah, it feel, I mean, she's a good Wonder Woman, and mm. the material hasn't been there for her, but yeah, it would be a shame if they drop her, because it feels like she hasn't really got the to The first do. film is still really, really good, yeah. and that mm. No Man's Land sequence is iconic. Uh, second Must have been film. pretty cool to be on set that day. <laughs> <laughs> Never mention it. Um, the second one had issues. Um, but, uh, I don't know if I'd like to see her back, given everything that's happening. Given all the, the context uh, would be different. Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. Too, much, too much baggage. Yeah. Maybe. Although, anything to bring back the electric cello, I'm saying. Am I the only person in the world who finds that incredibly annoying? Yes, you are. It's amazing. It was good the first time. You would not be saying this if you saw it you saw Hans and Madura. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. I mean, oh, would, I like, would I like to have it play every time I enter a room? Yes. <laughs> no one will agree to do it. Yeah. Um, Tina Guau doing the thing on stage. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That must have been good. Okay. Yeah. Any other news? I think we're done with news. I think we're done with I'm going to say news Look, is retired. Chris asked me to keep this tight because, yeah. you know, he's, How's he's, that going? He's go- well, <laughs> I've had better days. Okay. Uh, it is time, in that case, for another guest. Um, and this is Angel Manuel Soto, who is the director who made an impact with Charm City Kings, which was a Baltimore set kind of crime drama. And he's followed that up, of course, with this new DC superhero film, Blue Beetle. Uh, The Puerto Rican-born director has taken the Jaime Reyes incarnation of the character and given us an origin story and also a family story uh, that he hopes will be worthy of the screen's first Latinx superhero lead. Please enjoy. Angel, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Um, Apologies in advance if I'm even more incoherent than normal, uh, because I saw Blue Beetle last night and then immediately Barbenheimered. So I... I'm going to coin it right now. Beebleheimer is what I'm going to call it, right? So you have to see Blue Beetle and then Barbie and then Oppenheimer. And I came out of the cinema at 2.30 in the morning and my brain is fried. That's a, that's a good fright, man. That's a good fright. Do you <laughs> think this? I was fried because of that. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Do you think that this could be a new thing that uh, Blue Beetle could become part of this phenomenon as well? Uh, I think we can start it. I think you have the opportunity and the platform to do it. So count me in. So would you go with what I said? But would you go with Beebleheimer or would you go with Blue Barbenheimer? What would you, what would your title be? Blue Barbenheimer. <laughs> that sounds great. Is, is it easy for me to say it? Uh, yeah, Blue Barbenheimer. Yeah. I like Blue it. Blue Barbenheimer. Yeah, uh, yeah, it if, works if, for me. If, if a Latino can say it without <laughs> stepping on it, you're good. If a Northern Irish person can say it without stepping on it, then we're good. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing very well, I have to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, so w- when you're making this movie, obviously it's part, it's a strange one because it's part of the DCEU, but it's also kind of maybe the first shot across the bows of this new bold universe that Peter Gunn and, uh, you know, sorry, Peter Gunn, James Gunn and Peter Safran. Peter Gunn, Peter Gunn yeah. Too. That's Honestly, good too. That's the portmanteau. <laughs> 
No, like I told the, you I was incoherent. <laughs> no, you're actually being very coherent <laughs> and you're actually doing very smart puns. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the Blue Beetle story, um, well, it had started in the DCEU. Um, it had no connection to the DCEU. It was always intended to be its own thing. Mm-hmm. Its introduction to uh, the Blue Beetle into a cinematic universe. And unbeknownst to me, the, the cell happened and all these different regime changes. And when Peter Gunn, <laughs> see? See what I did there? James Saffron. <laughs> James Saffron, when they saw the movie, they saw that it could as well be anywhere because it works, it works in its own right. Because it's the story of Jaime becoming Blue Beetle. It's yeah. not right now associated with anything from the past and nothing from the future because it wasn't being created. So the opportunities, they are there for him to be part of the greater universe that is being created right now. And I think they saw that. And I think that's why uh, James said what he said. Uh, so so when you when you started out in the movie, how much did the movie change over the last few years from when you first came on? Um, I think uh, if anything that would have changed, probably would have been length related. <laughs> um, the story in itself didn't suffer much change. Um, uh, the intention behind it, the, the, the family dynamics of it all, the reluctant hero story of it, the, the personal stakes and the commentaries of the world we live today, all that stuff remained pretty intact. Um, even the tag was an idea that we've always had. Uh, to do for this, unrelated to the future that would uphold, because for us, his connection to all the superheroes that are out there, there are a lot of opportunities, and that really depends on the direction the uh, James Saffron want to take. <laughs> but um, as far as the story that we are telling, the one of Jaime Reyes and Blue Beetle and his journey, this was always the first act of a three of a saga. This is just the beginning of our character that we're getting to know. And he has on his own right, a heroic journey uh, with his own foes and elements. You, you mentioned his family there and I, I adored his family. There's, there's a family element in Shazam, obviously, but, but this felt there's a warmth to Jaime's family, which I which I really really loved, uh, the casting is interesting. George Lopez is a hoot in this. Yeah. Can I just say, as a huge Predator fan, how good it is to see El Pildio Carrillo in a movie again? Yeah, yeah. that's that's it, because of Predator. That's why I wanted her. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. And, 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 and and I'll, I'll tell you more. Bobby Krillick, our composer, uh, the moment that. Uh, Elpidia is telling Jaime to kick ass. Uh, the score is an homage to, there's a, a progression that's an homage to Predator. <laughs> yeah, we love homages, man. Like this movie is, this movie is so filled of nostalgia. Nostalgia for the, the, the movies that we love, the reason why we're here. And the reason why you love movies is the ones that made you. And we wanted to 
do a throwback to those things, do give it a fresh take and include them into the cinematic universe of superheroes. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. But but also I think I think in in a, in a strange way, Elpidia's casting almost speaks in a way to some of the themes of the movie, which is about, you know, how you know, this is a very, very diverse, a very representative movie, you know, as 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 you've talked about. And it feels to me like, you know, hers was a career that could have really taken off in Hollywood after Predator, but Hollywood wasn't, didn't allow for uh, Latino actresses to, to prosper in that way back then. And it feels like this movie is much, is, is very much setting out to redress the balance in, in a way. I mean, I hope so. I hope so. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. We have a history of, talented actors and 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 even from back when uh and the cinemas of latin america have proven to be amazing visceral experiences uh with performances that are riveting and and visceral at the same time uh and the humanity that transcends is sometimes on parallel and being able in you know in, within the hollywood system to finally have a film of this level or budget or yeah. I don't know how you want to call it, uh, have front and center a cast that is Latino. Um, shows you that Latino was never a genre to begin in. Yeah. Latinos are a community that draws a lot of tickets and you don't have to make it about it. We are it. They just yeah. have fun on a superhero movie that just happens to have Latinos at the forefront who are not embarrassed of who they are. And if this is the first step that could have happened back then on the 80s and it didn't, and it's happening now, mm. I, hope, I hope this changes things and we can see more stories be told, not just of Latinos, about Latinos, with Latinos, but of all the other ethnicities and demographics. Um, we can learn so much from each other. And I think that the more we see of each other in that light, uh, the better we're going to be as humans. Yeah, uh, damn straight. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I never see that as a... It always baffled me why it didn't happen. It's such a foreign concept. Absolutely. You talked about the music there, and the music's got this kind of it, 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 it's got this kind of eighties vibe, which I really, really liked. It feels a little bit like there's a bit of Angelus in there, but there's a bit of Tangerine Dream in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I liked. Yeah, Bobby Krillick and I, the moment that we sat down, I told him like, as much as I love the orchestra, big stuff that we're used to seeing, I'm like, ah, I wanna, I wanna bring Tangerine, Tangerine Dreams back. I want to be like, how can we make our 80s synth wave uh, love, which is a style that we both love, and, and make it into the superhero? Like, it can be heroic. Like, how many times have you gone cruising and you just, you're just feeling yourself listening to this synth? And I'm like, why can't our hero feel himself embracing that synth as well? So it, it, it was very fun to do. Uh, it was uh, not, what, not the expectations of the genre, but I think the, the ultimate outcome was so satisfying that it became, it, like, everybody loves it. Like, we have it in our cars. Like, we blast it all the time. It's like, 
oh my God, this could be a great, great, great track for anything, not just a superhero, for anything. Yeah, Bobby killed it. So the idea is that uh, Jaime is listening to this when, in his head, when it, the theme is playing in his head. Exactly. When he's, yeah, I like that. <laughs> exactly. And because of the because of the suit, because of the way the, the armor works, you know, you could have a pair of speakers that just come out of the armor. There was a moment, and I think we're going to do it for the next one, where, because, you know, it's symbiotic. And if anything you can imagine you can create, I'm sure I can have the best speakers <laughs> on the universe to listen to the track that I feel like when I was, when growing up, I always, I always carry my headphones everywhere I go and every song or music that I would play would become the soundtrack of my day. This is, and then you start acting like yeah. the music you're listening to yeah. and you're, you're just walking down the mall, but you feel like you're just walking, you know, you're creating your own story. I'm like, that'll be dope. If he can say like, okay, Play Wu Tang Clan. Fuck it. Let's go. Boom. And now you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be fun. So I think, like, yeah, I think that Kajida is going to be his iPod. Yeah, his, his <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> yeah, maybe Siri could be the bad guy in the next one and they could have a massive, massive face off. That would be, that would be interesting. Uh, what was your mood board like for this going into it? What, what sort of, because we talked a lot about your influences and uh, I think you know, we're, we're drawing roughly from the same pool, you and I, but what, were your, what was your, your visual mood board? Yeah, like uh, at first I started with, with Akira and that Neo Tokyo uh, drive, that energy with that synth energy, um, Pacific Rim, there's something so exciting and colorful about Pacific Rim mm. uh, that I liked a lot. Um, and then we just started transcending into a lot of like um, the thing. <laughs> Even if you like, like the thing, wow. that part of, uh, yeah, like the part in the, um, uh, when they're arriving to Antarctica and the whole element, like yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's sort of like what we try to do with the opening. Um, I had Kronos everywhere of course you know uh macario which we also reference in the movie yeah. was a big uh, influence in terms of the magic realism of sorts that happens in the cosmic realm um we had a lot of nicholas winding reference stuff put out there uh a lot of common uh, writer a lot of goyer uh a lot of dragon ball c wow. uh, uh it was a very colorful and broad palette. Indiana Jones. Um, we, we really had fun doing that because we were like, this is what my brain looks like. <laughs> it doesn't like, it feels like a mess, but it actually makes sense. And being able to translate it like aliens, Cronenberg, I could go all day giving you references. <laughs> What's interesting there is that you haven't really mentioned that many superhero films. True. So, you know, which is interesting because you know, there, there's been a few over the last few years. <laughs> I think so. As I'm sure you know, you may have seen I've a couple. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you're, when you're plotting your way through this movie, you know that there's going to be, that's going to be in people's minds, not just the DCEU, but, you know, the MCU, Iron Man, things like that. Is that on your mind in terms of how you avoid comparisons to that? You know, people are automatically going to be making comparisons. Comparisons are inevitable. I think is the way I see it is is the human way of making connections and 
and and find uh, familiarities and and that's okay. But for me, I although I've watched all of them, uh, I purposefully try to not use them as references uh, because I wanted to try something new. I wanted to the 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 genre itself has its expectations. There's certain checkbox that apply and and that need to be satisfied. But because there are so many and, and there's already a visual language that is working for a lot of them, um, we wanted to find our own lane, you know, try to be refreshing, uh, you know, nostalgic, and focus it on the things that make the character of Jaime Reyes and Blue Beetle unique. You know, he's not a, a, a loner. He's not a lonely hero. He's a, he, his family is involved from the beginning. Um, the idiosyncrasies that, uh, that make the Latino experiences are both unique yet universal. And being able to embrace the, the intimate approach that we wanted to give so this story, uh, I think, allowed us to ground ourselves in some of the realities that affect us in real life and be able also to talk about other issues and situations that have had implications in Latin America due to um, interventionism. Mm. So having that liberty to explore it in a self-contained way in a, in, 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 in a, in a, in a way that feels like, Oh my God, like this is not tied to anything. This could be its own thing. I understand. I connect and yet I'm inspired or I feel like this is new. Like for me, that's what's important. I think that's the beauty that we were trying to, to achieve. So hearing you say that makes me understand that, um, you know, some people are going to be able to see what we try to do. And that's beautiful. Absolutely. Well, I've got to let you go in a second, but uh, we started off talking about, um, obviously, Peter Gunn and James Saffron, but we, 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 we talked about as well Barbenheimer. And yeah, that's the, all the rage these days. And if you were to plot a double bill with Blue Beetle and one other film, the whole point of Barbenheimer, I guess, is that those films are complete opposites. They're, you know, they're, you know, Oppenheimer could not be any more different from Barbie. So if you were to recommend to someone that they were to watch Blue Beetle and then follow it up with another movie, what would it be? You say like the, the, the antithesis? Yeah. West Side Story. West Side Story. Which one? The OG. <laughs> <laughs> Why has that popped into your head? Um, I guess for personal reasons, is it was like the first time that you had uh, characters that were Puerto Rican. Yep. Uh, or in my case, Puerto Rican, but in the case of the Latino, and right off the bat, we're gangsters, or we're we're you know we're we we're no good. Right off the bat. We, we cannot talk. Why are they bad? Like we're, we're moochers. We're, mm. there's not a positive light. 
And that became the stigma for decades. Mm. That's how we were seen for decades. Yes, Rita Moreno won as an actress, but that didn't change the way uh, the United States saw us. Here, we're seeing our characters, our Latino characters, be heroes, be honest workers, be good citizens, be loving family. And imagine if that was the way we were portrayed in the 60s, how would people see us now? We will still be dealing with the same bullshit or not. So I do think that type of thing matters. That's an amazing answer. An amazing answer. Uh, on that note, Angel, I'm going to let you go. But uh, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure, man. Thanks so much for your time. No, you're a lot of fun. I hope we can do this again. Absolutely. Make Bye. it so. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. It is time for reviews. And, you know, let's start with Blue Beetle because, God forbid, we leave it to the end and just append it on awkwardly after we've announced a whole new focus for our entire endeavours. Uh, so uh, who's going to tell me about Blue Beetle? I'm on. Yes, yeah, so this stars Sholo Maraduena of Cobra Kai fame as Jaime Reyes. Uh, he's a recent college graduate with big plans for his future. He comes back home and he finds that his family is struggling, so he's looking for a job and he's trying to find his purpose. Lo and behold, just around this time, he comes into possession of a scarab, which is a piece of alien biotechnology that fuses with him in a very symbiotic way and gives him... Iron Man-esque powers. Um, the key thing with that sequence is that his family watched the sequence happen, watch it happen, and they are very much in the mix from that point on. There's no secret identity thing here. And that is the thing that is really, really working for Blue Beetle, that family dynamic uh, that Jaime Reyes has with the rest of the people. Uh, my, my two favorites of the family were George Lopez as Uncle Rudy, who is sort of an inventor and he's making stuff. He's also very, very funny. And then Nana. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what she gets up to in the <laughs> final act, but it's a lot of fun. Um, so that was great. Um, I think Sholo himself is really, really good in this role. His physicality and athleticism, which you will know if you've seen Cobra Kai, which actually is a great show, um, really lends itself to the action sequences, which at their best have a nice mix of practicality and CGI. Um, also, more Latino representation is always great. Um, I'm not, it's really interesting sort of seeing the discussion of that online. People are acting like this is the first. Spider-Verse was not that long ago, people, and Spider-Verse has an Afro-Latino. True, but it's a, it's an animated thing. I guess we're talking It's a cartoon, Amon, is what Helen's saying. No, it's a cartoon. I mean, there's so many caveats, but it is the first live action, action yes but people movies. haven't been making that qualification they're just, they're just okay. been saying first and that's like you know, Spider-Verse is right there um, but that is really really cool to see even though I think they hammered that point home a little unnecessarily so yeah. they do but yeah. it's also woven into the DNA I think of yeah. this film to its benefit mm. my issue with this is that it's just not very fresh um, a lot of what we see here we've seen in many many other superhero films from the final act you know I've got a suit you've got a suit let's bash each other together to even the family stuff to a degree we've seen that in Miss Marvel I don't I think they do it better here but we have seen that sort of stuff in Miss Marvel and there's so many other things I could point out. I was like, we could have seen that 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 and that which is a shame um, there's even stuff with the granny that was done by Mamma Mia here we go again I'm just saying <laughs> 
Um, yeah. I will also say that Susan Sarandon's villain is very one note and very shallow. Um, <laughs> that, that's a charitable description. <laughs> this, I would say, is almost a career-endingly terrible role for her. Yeah. Like it's the worst thing I've seen on screen in a very, very, very long time. Who is she playing? She plays the villain in this. Victoria, Victoria Cord. Yeah. And not only is her character, I mean, she hams it up, but the dialogue she's given is yeah. shocking. Yeah, really shocking. And then she's sort of backed up here by Raul Max uh, Trujillo, who plays Carapax. Yeah. He's like the the muscle, the villain. And he, I mean, if there's something less than one dimensional, he's a naught dimensional well, villain. Well, I don't no, no, think no, that's no, quite so, fair. No, no, no. But until, okay, but we can't, okay. Until the very final yeah, act when he is given a <laughs> tiny bit of backstory, yeah. he is just this malignant force. And it's this awful thing where it's the most basic bitch superhero stuff when, you, when the villain is an evil reflection of the main character. He's Red Beetle, essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's just, it's, and then then to have a climax where it's CG objects throwing themselves at each other with no effect mm. is so dull and it's really upsetting and I think my issue with this film and, and, and I think this could have been a genuine stinker like a properly terrible superhero movie because the plot is borderline non-existent certainly mm. nonsensical incredibly first base you know the character itself is kind of like budget yellow jacket meets budget Iron Man meets budget Venom mm. and you know all of the so you don't, and it feels like some even the poster feels ripped out of the early 90s mm. but to me all of that stuff is salvaged from the very precipice of the abyss by personality like it's mm. just it's a lot of fun he's very likable and mm. as Amon alluded to his family his family and I should point out his mum played by Elpidia Carrillo who is actual Anna from Predator which makes him <laughs> the demon that makes trophies of men um, <laughs> but his family is so much fun to be around like yeah. they're funny they're really engaging they don't feel like Comet Relief they feel like an integral part of the plot they are always there mm. uh, and it feels like rather than him being superhero it feels like they're a super family but he's the only one with powers yeah. mm. and they're such an integral part of the film that you enjoy it despite that yeah, I, I I had real pro I was really rolling my eyes for large parts of this film. Like I could see so many things happening before they happened mm -hmm. because there are it's no surprises here in the plot. And yeah. the, and that the suit is terrible. Like you say, a mix of you know a bit Deadpool in there as well. But like it just looks like cheap yellow jacket. And and maybe there's no way around that. Maybe that's baked in. Maybe at this point we've just seen too many superhero movies. I, I get that that's possible, but it also doesn't. It doesn't justify itself. It doesn't justify itself with a mythology. It doesn't explain why this. What we're told is alien tech mm. acts exactly like Friday in you know Tony Stark's suit. Why mm. why this alien tech is there? Why it chooses him instead of the many other people with whom it has come into contact? Why his family? <laughs> who love him very much, stand around while Jaime is basically possessed by this crazy thing. There is, it is a genuine, there's a genuine piece of horror cinema in the middle of this, mm. and his family are standing around horrified and watching, but not that horrified, given <laughs> what they're seeing. Mm. I would be screaming a lot louder. You know? <laughs> so it, it, there are these weird moments that just absolutely took me out of the film and I really struggled with. But like you say, I mean, there is there is a, a goodness to it and there's a likability to it and you're kind of rooting for it. The only thing I would say about the family is, yes, a lot of attention is given to them and, and they are wonderful, you know, like feel like, you know, real parts of the story. But it does mean there's less time for Jaime himself and you do get less mm. of what his hopes and desires yeah. are. But beyond helping his family and a vague plan to become a lawyer, like it's not clear how and why and when that's going to happen, you know. So... You know what he has though, Helen? Good hair. 
He does have good hair, like fair play. And even when he's been in the suit for That's ages, true. Like it's still he doesn't have suit hair. Body and um, bounds. Yeah. My concern with this is obviously there's been talk that even though the DCEU is no more, that his character might persist off on into the DCU. Uh, my worry is that his character isn't really worth preserving. The the thing that makes him good, who are the sporting characters in this, I feel like if you're going to have team-ups, if you're going to have crossovers, they're not going to make that transition. And I think without them, I don't know that there's anything here really worth keeping. I'm not detecting Beatlemania. No, <laughs> there is, there's no Beatlemania blue or otherwise, sadly. No. So we gave this one three stars, which is a recommendation. It is. But with those caveats, yeah. if like us, you've seen a lot of superhero movies, yeah. this may not feel Have as fresh we? as you might like. <laughs> um, okay, but there, that is not the only new film in cinemas this week. Next up is Strays, mm. a film that literally sucks balls, but does it, <laughs> does it figuratively? Mm. How about you? What do you think? Uh, I'm on. Yes, so this is directed by Josh Greenbaum and produced by Bill Lord and Chris Miller of Spider-Verse and many other films fame. Um, it stars Will Ferrell as Reggie. He is a talking dog. He's abandoned on the streets uh, by Doug, uh, who is a horrible, horrible owner. Played by uh, Will Forte. Played by Will Forte. Um, but he falls in with a pack of strays led by Bug, who's voiced by Jamie Foxx. And... As he comes to realize that his relationship with Doug was very toxic, uh, a mission forms in his mind uh, for him, Bug, and the rest of the strays. Uh, they must journey to Doug's house and bite his penis off. Um, penis We're going to take his fe- oh. penis. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the plot of Face Off 2. True. Wow. Dick off. Oh, God. So... On the one hand, this is a story about sort of recognizing you in a toxic relationship and trying to escape it. And I do think there's a handful of nicely observed moments within that. It also gives you um, a nice understanding of why humans do love dogs. There's some healthier alternatives to the initial sort of plot lines presented here. My issue with this is the joke. <laughs> it felt like they were spamming one type of joke a lot. It's a real uh, gross out comedy. It's a very gross out comedy and it's just like over and over and over again. It's been like three seconds since we've had a dick joke. Let's have another one and another one and another one. And that, <laughs> there's only so many times I can chuckle at that before asking, can you teach this dog some new tricks, please? Um, so like so, Reservoir Dogs, it's dick, 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 dick. <laughs> it's a lot of dick. It's a lot of poop. And, it's you know, a lot of throwing up and then eating of, it. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I, and, I get that with some of this humor, they, some of this gross out stuff, they want it to be funny, but a lot of it just was just gross to me, mm. um, which was an issue. But I thought the cast were pretty good. They're very, very good at riffing. You know, I, I really liked They Clone Tyrone recently with Jamie Foxx just being amazing in that film. If you have not seen it, it's streaming on Netflix now. Please, please, please go and watch it. Uh, but he's very, very good here. And Will Ferrell, as we no, is also very good at riffing. And I do think they do a pretty good job. Uh, but yeah, some of the jokes, I was just like, come on, a little bit more. When, when they give us more variety, they actually come up with some really good stuff. There's a joke which has a really great punchline with Narrator Dog, <laughs> which I'm not going to reveal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that is really, really good. If mm. they gave us more stuff like that, I feel like I would have had a better time. Well, with the, the director, Josh Greenbaum, did Barb and Star go to Vista del Mar, which is yeah. one of my favorite films of 2021. Fantastic movie. Is yeah. there anything in it to match the Seagull song? 
from no. Bob and Star. No, <laughs> there, are, there are a couple of. I mean, well, exactly. What could, I mean, I you know, I, I feel like I'm just Ken is the closest we've had to that. <laughs> Anywhere ever since. else that be your but, time. Uh, but yeah, seagull and attire. Can you hear my prayer? Please stop making dick jokes. <laughs> I, I'm the same. I just find like I I I I find myself actively feeling nauseated a few times, um, and mm. that's not my favorite kind of comedy, if I'm mm-hmm. honest. But also, like, there wasn't enough variety in the humor you're right to to kind of make up for that and there, there weren't enough alternative jokes in there i went long periods without laughing very much yeah me too uh, even though i like i agree the cast are great there's also you know isla fisher's in there josh gad has randall a little park. tiny role and randall park is great but it doesn't quite leap off the and page the dogs these are real dogs that have cg mouths yeah, yeah. So, yes, does that yeah. work that yeah it's pretty, it's pretty well done actually mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. kind of i mean they've been doing it since babe i guess so they're kind of you know they're, they're pretty good at it now but yeah it, they've they've got some good like animal footage in there that's that's pretty fun it just uh our john nugent in his review described this as an r-rated kids film which yeah. seems to me a decent way of approaching this <laughs> I'm just imagining parents taking their kids to go God see. Help us <laughs> <laughs> so it's like sausage party. It's like yeah, sure. Yeah. Some people took kids. It's to sausage party. kids, not it little is, kids. Yeah, it is genuinely that is that is what came to mind during this. Yeah, it is yeah. sausage party, but with yeah. dogs. Yeah, uh, cold dogs instead of hot dogs. With fewer if food orgies, I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fewer food orgies. Yeah. Anywho, <laughs> that is Strays. We gave that three stars. Three stars. Um, okay, we're just going to very, very quickly cover a couple of other films that are out. My Name is Hitchcock technically came out a couple of weeks ago, but it's still kind of going slowly around the country and only having maybe a couple of shows a week because it was competing with Barbenheimer. Um, and I have finally got around to seeing it rather belatedly. I apologize. Uh, so this is the Mark Cousins documentary about Alfred Hitchcock, and it has... Alistair McGowan doing an Alfred Hitchcock impression really well and sort of narrating this quasi-documentary, analysing some of the themes and some of the recurring uh, ideas in Hitchcock films. Now, obviously, that's incredibly cheeky because it's all written by Mark Cousins and it's basically putting his words in Hitchcock's mouth. But it's also rooted enough in deep, deep knowledge of Hitchcock's films that I find it pretty compelling actually and I feel like Hitch probably wouldn't argue with a lot of it so um, so yeah I, I, really really fascinating made me want to go back and watch I haven't seen all the early silence um, I don't think I've even seen all of the, the Hollywood years so uh, made me go and watch some Hitchcock so we give that four stars then for Hitchcock cool. and also uh, this week on Sky is Biosphere what can you tell me about that James? So this is the directorial debut of Mel Eslin who's more better known, I guess, as a producer, uh, and she co-wrote this with Mark Duplass. It stars literally Mark Duplass and Sterling K. Brown. It is a two-hander. It is highly theatrical. It takes place in a single location, which is a single sort of biodome. This does not make this the sequel to the 1990s Paulie Shaw, Stephen Baldwin film, Biodome. I'm sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) It is tonally slightly different. So this takes place a non-disclosed amount of time after the end of the world. And it's two men in a small biosphere, a little hermetically sealed dome, protected from the apocalypse, living with some fish, uh, some water, two little bedrooms, a living room, and crucially, a Super Nintendo console. So uh, these two guys, Ray and Billy, uh, Sterling K. Brown plays the kind of straight man Billy, which is Marty Plass, is kind of the more comedic character. They have been friends since they were kids. They have a lot of history. They knew each other since they were eight years old. As they grew up, 
Billy became the president of the United States <laughs> and Ray became his advisor. And it's alluded to that Billy may or may not, as a Republican president, been responsible for the apocalypse. No comment. <laughs> uh, but they, for the length of this film, it's 106 minutes long, they sit and they largely talk. They hang out. And you get the impression, weirdly, that the dynamic of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis hasn't changed massively from eight years old to when they were adults to after the end of the world. They hang out, they play video games, they talk about things like masturbation etiquette when you share a single room. Um, you know, it, And so it's kind of a hangout movie. But more than that, it explores... You know, it's a little bit of sort of philosophizing over the human condition. It talks about male friendships an awful lot. It talks about sexuality and gender. Uh, it talks a lot about homophobia as well and upbringings and things like that. And it talks about the kind of misalignment between the fantastical and the scientific and how scientific minds deal with things they can't explain. And it's about them essentially ruminating on their own mortality in this situation. Now, there is a significant plot development, which I'm not going to go into. A lot of reviewers have spoiled it. I'm not going to. It's not a twist. It's not a twist. It's just something that happens during the film. Um, but I don't think it's actually essential to understanding what this film is. And part of it is it's just understanding the dynamic between these two men. Now, Mark Duplass is very, very good in this. But to me, Brown is the standout. He is in incredible. Uh, he plays this straight role perfectly. He gives it conviction. He gives it heart. And you really believe it. And there is a scene in this film, which is unlike anything you've ever seen before, but there are conversations in this film that I guarantee you've never heard people have before. Mm -hmm. So all of this stuff is really, really good. The only main criticism I have of this film is this, and I'm going to go back to the runtime. It's 106 minutes long. It doesn't have the story to last 106 mm -hmm. minutes. This feels to me like it's a Black Mirror episode. Like, this is a single solid hour of really good television, and it covers some really interesting points. It's dystopian. It's quite open-ended. It doesn't explain an awful lot of things. There's a mysterious green light that turns up at one point. Like, it teases you with stuff, but it feels like the apocalypse is the backdrop, but not integral to the story. It's about these characters. And I feel that enjoyable as that is, and as enjoyable as the issues they tackle is, they don't tackle some of the others, and they certainly don't really progress the story enough to keep you, I think, engaged for the full runtime. So, so I liked it. Uh, I don't think we have an official Empire review for this. I'd give this, this one a good solid three stars, uh, but I do think it maybe outstays its welcome just a little. Yeah, I probably agree with that. I think Brown is fantastic. His arc is very, very delicate, and I mm. think it's, it would be very easy to get that wrong, but he plays it just right. Uh, and I've been a fan since This Is Us and maybe even before that, so I, yeah, he's awesome. I'm just going to wrap it up with a very quick mention that a documentary called Billion Dollar Heist is out this week, which is about the Bangladeshi central bank uh, cyber theft, basically, mm. in I think 2016. It's a very complicated subject, and the film does its best to explain it, but I'll be honest, I didn't 100% understand it by the end of the film but I kind of got I kind of got the broad strokes but I you know I think some of the finer detail remains to be seen and there's a lot of talking head kind of experts explaining that cybercrime is a huge huge concern and could be a huge you know destabilizing problem in the future and that no one is necessarily protected against it so it has a certain amount of drama I'm not going to lie to you um, but I, I didn't think it was the very best documentary ever like you know when you came out of Enron or something like that, you felt like you understood what had happened. Even if you didn't, you felt like you had. I didn't quite have that feeling here. So mm. interesting, but maybe not essential. I'd probably go a three-star on that. Okay, one final guest. <laughs> we are getting there. If you have been living under a rock for the last decade or so, you may, well, first of all, you probably have a bad back and possibly <laughs> mental health issues. 
But you may also need an introduction to Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Otherwise, you'll know that they are the comedy supremos who gave us the Lego movies, the Spider-Verse movies, and the Jump Street movies. And this week, they are here as the producers of Strays, that dog movie about a put-upon pup. Um, and we sent our own human Labrador along <laughs> to talk to them, Ben Travis, uh, to have a chat. So please enjoy Ben talking to Phil Lord and Chris Miller. It is a delight to welcome to the Empire podcast, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. How are you guys doing? Doing great. How are you doing? I am excellent, thank you. I watched Strays this morning. That was the start of my week. That was my Monday morning. And it was a pretty joyous way to start the week. How has it been for you guys working on a talking dog movie for the last however long? I mean, it's been our longtime dream. Uh, <laughs> Since we saw Beverly Hills Chihuahua, <laughs> um, I it's it's been really fun. This script came to us, uh, uh, and and uh, it's certainly the most intelligent and thoughtful, uh, dick biting film we've ever been a part of. <laughs> it's a big uh, canon. It is a yeah. long and proud tradition. <laughs> a long, a long and storied list. Um, but yeah, it's it working on a talking dog movie that is this uh raunchy and uh crazy and goes to such ridiculous places, uh, but also has a a heart and a sweetness and a warmth to it. Uh I don't think we would have gotten involved if it was wasn't so sweet at its core, uh, despite being incredibly, incredibly raunchy. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine the filth hits you pretty much page one of the script, but do you know even vaguely what to expect going in? It, it, do you just get sent this script, or has somebody kind of teed you up of, hey, this is this is kind of homeward bound with dick jokes? Do you know that going in, or do you <laughs> wait for that to hit you? Pretty quickly when you read it, and then you sort of go, I hope they don't pull any punches. Like, I hope they really bite his dick off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the the writer Dan Peralt, uh, we had met and was a, we were a fan of. Uh, he made a, a a very funny television series that we that we really liked, and so we knew he had uh, a a wicked uh, sense of humor. Um, and we you know, and reading the script, we're like, oh, this is uh, actually a movie. This isn't just a one joke situation. This is an actual. Uh, sweet movie with something to say about toxic relationships uh and it's super funny uh so uh, and it's like i've never seen anything like this before so uh, yeah it's sort of yeah all the boxes for always us. attracted to projects that go all the way <laughs> <laughs> and are you dog people are you guys like as producers on this, are you demanding to be in the dog auditions? How hands-on are you with that stuff? <laughs> There's a lot of, um, like, a long uh, email thread where people pitched different breeds. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of talk about which different breeds would play off each other. For their own dog's breed, and they got very <laughs> passionate. Uh, and I, I'm, Mostly I spent my energy trying not to put my thumb on the scale for the labradoodle breed which is obviously the single best breed of dog ever wouldn't disagree more i've got a kapapoo in my household and she is <laughs> the best oh how we the... even stay friends anymore <laughs> you got a labradoodle gag 
in the in the film. It's represented right. in there somewhere. Um, oh, that is excellent. Have, have they got cameos? Your dogs? Did you did you like shove them in front of the camera at some point? No, no, we did not. Uh, we didn't do that. Uh, we're, we have some restraint. Flying them <laughs> to Atlanta uh, on uh, pretending to be service dogs. <laughs> yeah that sounds like some like lost 80s hollywood story of like other oh, producers flew in their own dogs just to get them in a cameo <laughs> um in terms of then the, the human casting for this uh you've got an incredible cast i love will ferrell in like naive fish out of water optimism mode that is his like buddy the elf register but with a layer of filth in this as reggie as the lovely little border terrier who has a truly horrible owner uh what can you tell me about pulling together the the human cast and connecting them to the breeds of the central dogs here <laughs> he plays silly with such an intelligence that's kind of under, behind it that that you're you're always on board with him and I can say that about all the cats that like there's, you know, Jamie Foxx is also like has an, a kind of inherent benevolence that gives him permission, gives us permission to laugh at them being very naughty all the time. Right. But also, I think what's part of the fun is how innocent they all are in that they don't even Jamie Foxx's character claims to know how the world works and claims to be sort of a streetwise character, but doesn't actually know anything about anything. And that's what makes it uh, so fun. And, you know, Jamie is one of the most multi-talented uh, people you know we've ever seen. He's good at <laughs> and we've worked with a lot of very talented people over the years, and he really is one of the best to ever do it. And um, being in the sessions where uh, Will and Jamie would play off of each other and just go to crazy places uh, uh, and really enjoy, you know, the back and forth between each other uh, was was really a marvel to watch. It was really funny and fun, but also just sort of like, wow, I'm watching two legends, uh, you know, bounce off each other. And uh, and I understand why they're both some of the most successful people in the entertainment business and then there's you know randall park and isla fisher who are you know really funny amazing performers in their own right and also are able to bring that kind of that i don't know they're, they're just like lovable <laughs> even though they can say like really sharp funny things in terms of putting this together, I, I'm fascinated by the the craft of making a, a talking dog movie. Because so for you guys as producers on this, do you end up looking at dailies? Which for listeners, that is like the raw footage coming in that has been filmed. But the dailies for this is like the dailies they're for just this dogs, is just dogs like hitting just a mark. Dogs. Uh, it's studio. They just had no idea whether what they were. And, and, the, and just to be to edit the movie you kind of like you get all this footage and it's like dogs you know wa walking around and looking at each other and like like kind of like looking around and then sniffing their own butt for a second and you know like <laughs> what it and then you're putting voiceover on top of that at any point in the footage it's like it was a crazy process to to put together the daily are the most boring dailies <laughs> <laughs> there are only a handful of scenes with actual humans in them uh yeah. and most of it is just silent footage of dogs <laughs> dogs hitting their marks <laughs> silent footage hitting. of dogs 
when like you're... sniffing each other and then will forte just being absolutely horrible exactly that is exactly. that's your movie like at what point then do you know this is working or this is not working are they do you film the dogs before the actors have done their voice parts how how what way round does that work we, we did, did both. we did both records ahead of time because we wanted to capture whatever improvisations would come out of everybody's interactions and then be able to design gags around it. And then of course we did a lot of recording afterwards. Yeah. We would like cut together things. Uh, and then, then the actors would do even crazier things than we thought. And we would try and find like, Oh, the, like Jamie did this funny thing. Do we have any footage of that dog? Like looking to the left and then to the right, like when we wasn't, like not quite hitting his mark right. Um, and they would go digging and find things that would match the things that he would do. Or sometimes the dog would do something weird and be like, oh, just cover this thing. Well, he started jumping up and down for no reason. And be like, hey, uh, say <laughs> there's a lot of happy accidents that that you kind of have to stitch together into a movie. Yeah, I mean, the technical challenge on that front, uh, you've got Josh Greenbaum directing this. How long was he on your radar? We are huge Barb and Star fans in the Empire office. That is a big Empire favourite. We've actually, I went to his brother's wedding and he directed a, a video that played at the rehearsal dinner that was hilarious. And we had a meeting with him, I don't know, whenever that was, 12 years ago. When we're at a bit from that video <laughs> and, and <laughs> he, even then he just had an innate sense of what was funny. And they went on and did a bunch of great things, including a documentary about the people who perform as mascots. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then of course, Barb and star, which is wonderful. And, and, and it's funny in two different ways. It's there's things that are discovered while you shoot and it feels loose and um, and discovered. Right. And then it's also like heavily designed and directed. And there are laughs that come from the precision of how he has put together the shoot. And and this movie requires both. You need a, <laughs> you need a lot of forethought. Right. Because you have to go like, all right, the dogs are going to do this and we need to we need six months to train them <laughs> to, to do this one gag. But then you also need to be spontaneous and, and light on your feet so that when Will and Jamie come up with something silly, you're able to roll with it and develop it on the spot. Right. Um, and he I has don't both- know that there's anybody uh, who could have done the job as uh, as perfectly suited as uh, as Josh and uh, and have the patience to you know get a bunch of footage of <laughs> dogs you know having a conference uh <laughs> i mean the thing with bob and star as well is that like we all watched that at home none of us in the empire office got to watch that together most people will have seen that at home uh, this is a big r-rated studio comedy that is heading to cinemas is that an important thing for you to try and with the power that you guys have as producers to to create that kind of comedy that is designed to be seen together on the big screen. For sure. I think that the uh, seeing a comedy in a cinema with a bunch of uh, your community uh, 
is uh, is his own experience. The, the everyone laughing together in a big room is so much more fun of an experience than laughing by yourself in your house, <laughs> um, which is great. It's great, especially when things are depressing and uh, the world is ending. But uh, it's even better to have a communal experience. Uh, uh, it really is one of the one of the great joys is going to see a movie in a big group and everyone reacting together, where there's a horror film and everyone's screaming at the same time, or uh, or a comedy where everyone is laughing and or people are like, can't believe how crazy it's getting. And you're looking around to your neighbors going, like, can you believe this? It's such a fun, joyous experience that I think uh, there hasn't been enough of recently. And uh, and it's time for uh, time for a comeback. We're just very committed to the um, to, you know, to making comedies that play in a movie theater. And to keep swinging the bat, you know, you never, you know, it's, you need, you know, you never know what, if the, you're going to find that alchemy that makes something pop off the way Barbie did, right? Or like the way <laughs> cocaine bear, like lit up people's <laughs> imaginations, you know, but yeah. our, 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 you know, we're committed to just trying to make great comedies that make you laugh and make you think a little bit. And we just show everybody a great time at the movie theater. Yeah, I mean, Sam, in your year, sandwiched between Cocaine Bear and Strays, you have Across the Spider-Verse, which is just by a distance my favourite film this year so far. It's just absolutely incredible. Uh, a couple of months on from that coming out, obviously it's just hit home ends now. It's still in some cinemas as well, I think, which is amazing. Uh, how are you feeling about how it landed with people? Because you set yourself such a high bar to cross. It is such a big, daring movie and people were all in on it. It is outstanding. How are you feeling about how that was? how that went down this summer? Well, they say the only positive emotion you can experience in the movie business is Relief. <laughs> We're very relieved because, you know, the, the only way the first Spider-Verse is such a big swing. We just felt like the only way to follow it up is to take even more risks. And um, and you just never know if you're going to outpace the audience's desire to see those risks. And it, it, it just turned out that people were there for it and were just so grateful, uh, feel really lucky that um, that people are are willing to 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 follow this franchise wherever it leads. Yeah, I was listening back. You guys did an interview with uh, with Chris Hewitt and Buzz Chris Hewitt, mm -hmm. uh, which I think was maybe like a year and a half ago. Now it was a little while ago. Uh, before it was announced that uh, the Spider-Verse sequels, it was going to be a two-parter. It was going to be the back-to-back -back sequels. And you guys teased, oh, we're working on something at the moment that we think is really big and maybe it's more than one movie. And I was listening back to that and I was like, that's presumably that Spider-Verse. I mean, the, the, the fact that you made a two-hour, 20-minute part one superhero movie animated, like, what does it mean to you that people embraced it in the way that they have? It is it is pretty wild. Um it it's uh you know you're trying you're putting a message in a bottle and you're hoping that somebody uh, sees it and and appreciates it and uh and sees the world differently because of it and um we feel you know lucky that we got to get away with making something so uh different <laughs> uh and experimental. Um and 
um, and it, seeing people connect to it emotionally, I think, is the thing that's been the most uh, the most gratifying because you know it's it's a it's an emotional uh, story and a crazy journey, and certainly it became so so big that it wasn't going to fit into one movie. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so thankfully people, uh, are along for the ride and, uh, I hope they will, uh, uh, be satisfied, uh, with the conclusion. Yeah. I mean, the thing that we spent a lot of time thinking about also when we made the choice to split the movie up, it's just like the, 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 the opportunity for, uh, an animated film to be thought of in a different light. You know, like I think some people mistake animation for a genre instead of a technique. <laughs> right. And so the, the thought of making an an epic <laughs> in animated form with, you know, an intermission that lasts uh, two or three years <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of like a story that takes place over this length and that positions animation as a, a medium that can tell, you know, big stories along the lines of like a David Lean movie. That's really important to us to expand what the audience expect from an animated film. Yeah. And uh, no pressure for uh, Beyond the Spider-Verse. This is my time up, but it's been lovely to speak to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Uh, Unless you're going to pilot TV this weekend. Hooray! Or, of course, long to hear Nick and Chris talk about... Stallone. Stallone. (laughs) That was terrible. Rambo, uh, we you will be have to join us again next week for more film related fun when we are go- going to be joined by Joel Taylor, the director of They Clone Tyrone, <gasps> and potentially somebody else that Chris couldn't remember when I asked him who was going to be on next week. <laughs> um, so I think the hold music may well be affecting his brain at this point. Uh, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Amon. Peace. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. See and you it is- at King's Place. Yes, and it is goodbye from Nick. You're terminated. <laughs> I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle, and your microphone. Yes. <laughs> okay. This look. If you do, Chris. guys. If you guys start doing impressions of all these guys, we're going to be here all day. <laughs> and it is also goodbye from me. I am off to think more about perfectly tousled hair. <laughs> and Captain Pike. Fair. <laughs> Thanks very much. Bye bye. 